This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder. Or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ibera Star Hotels and Resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is Andy Wirth, co-founder and CEO of Peak Skis. Andy, how do you know Bodie Miller, your partner? Uh, Bob, great to be here and really an honor to be on your show. Um, and also, total dig on your Joe Walsh uh, riff that brings us into the show. One of the great songs of all time. Wait, wait, wait. Most people don't recognize it. That's Meadows, the first song on the second side of the smoker you drink, the, the player you, you get. get. How do you know that? I am a music fan. I play guitar. I used to play a little bit better than I do nowadays because of this little accident 10 years ago. But I have loved and appreciated anybody who can play guitar well, regardless of genre. And I first cut my teeth on Joe Walsh. Gosh, I don't know, early 80s? late 80s 70s something like that and just love that album and rocky mountain way uh different album though right I no, think. that's the opening track on that, that album. Is it. yeah yeah but then mountain uh meadow excuse me love that i, I like also how on your show you took out the beginning of the song yeah. you really know it that's for sure oh no i listened to that tune probably about fifteen thousand times and then i've also played it on guitar a tenth as good as Joe Walsh about 300 times. So, yeah, great tune. Cool well, cool selection. What's your story on it? What well, is the deal? I mean, there's a, I mean, I'm a big Joe Walsh fan. Joe said I could use it. But uh, I knew the track. But his final uh, album, his ABC Dunhill Deal, he put out a live album, which was actually a TV show. And I was driving from Salt Lake back to Connecticut. And I played the six cassettes that I bought. And I never bought cassettes, but I didn't have a tape player. That was one of them. And I think of Vale Pass, which used to be difficult, but yeah. now since it's been for many years, four lane, but at the top, it's like a meadow. And I remember playing that right in that area. But you have a relationship with Eddie Vedder. How do you know Eddie Vedder? Well, I don't know him well, but 
I've been a fan of Pearl Jam going back to along with about 10 billion other people um, early early 90s with everything that they put out starting in 92, 93. And like I said, I love all kind of music. I'd probably go deepest on country, country western, both types of, types of music, but at the same time was always into Zeppelin, Aerosmith, and the great guitar players, Joe Walsh and, and the like, you name it. Um, but then got into Pearl Jam and What's interesting is I had a I had a bad skydiving accident about ten years ago. In fact, I'm coming up on the ten year anniversary of that accident, which I want to call my alive day. We can talk about that. We certainly can. But um, one of his tunes that I really accidentally came into, accidentally stum- stumbled into, um, came to me at a very critical moment uh, when I was bleeding out and dying, and I eventually died. But they brought me back. <laughs> And uh, which worked out well. It was a good day. Um, but one of his tunes called Just Breathe was halfway through the closing credits of a movie about a very good friend of mine who's a good, great horseman. His name is Buck Branneman out of Sheridan, Wyoming. He had worked with Nicholas Sparks on the movie, uh, the book a Horse Whisperer uh, with Redford on the movie Horse Whisperer. But he had been doing a whole bunch of horse work for years and years, and they made this indie film about him, One Sundance. And I'm watching it for the first time, and at the, halfway through the ending close, close of the closing credits, Just Breathe comes on. And it just doesn't make any sense. I mean, you got to keep in mind that when I introduced Buck in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, where I used to live, to Tanya Tucker, I mean, that was the deal. I mean, he thought Tanya rose, the sun rose and set on Tanya Tucker. And he's probably right. probably still does. But um, in this case, caught me off guard because what is a Pearl Jam song doing at the end of a movie about Buck Brandman? Curious, called him, found out. Four months later, and I'd not known this song, this song came to me at a very critical, crucial time. Wait, 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 before you get there, how did it end up in the movie? Um, it had to do with his upbringing and his life. And um, I highly recommend watching this movie, whether or not you're into horses, kind of doesn't matter. And he had a really, really rough upbringing in a town called Ennis, Montana, which I happen to live nowadays about 15, 20 minutes away from Ennis. And uh, he just got the crap beat out of him by his dad. It was bullshit. Angers me to think about it. But as part of him navigating that and as who who he is today because of that, um, he mentioned that song just fit. It just worked. And the song had meaning and more. So that's how it kind of related to his, it was a tip of the hat, regardless of the music type, uh, tip of the hat to what that song speaks to. Okay, so let's go back 10 years ago. Yeah. You're skydiving. How much experience had you had skydiving? A fair amount. I'd gotten what's called AFF, Accelerated Freefall Certification. What is that? It's a, a, a license certification to jump. It's like getting your driver's license. And uh, I never sought to or wanted to jump in a tandem. So I ended up getting AFF, uh, uh, this certification, uh, and it ended up jumping a bunch with friends that you might know, know, might know of or know from Squaw Valley, JT Holmes and Timmy Dutton, the late great Timmy Dutton, and a few others, um, Charles Bryan, Red Bull Air Force guy. And I had to... Uh, I, I not had to, I got to jump with them quite a bit, actually. Paris, Lodi, Davis, all over California. Anytime could find an airplane with a door, love jump out of it. So got into that in a substantial way. 
and uh, had a fair amount of experience. The thing is, jumping with these guys, I had the opportunity. Most of them had jumps well over ten or fifteen thousand. Most of them actually jumped for a living. Most of the guys that I would jump with, with whom I would jump, excuse me, would uh, would actually be in films. You know, JT worked with on Transformers Three. Um, I mean, these are very high level folks. So I was kind of the rookie tagging along, but because of that, I got a fair amount of experience quickly and had the opportunity to jump with some outstanding people. Okay. So tell us about this yeah. day 10 years ago. So by the way, I love it. I, have you ever done it? No, I never have. Not so by that look, it doesn't look like it's on your Well, you know, list. I like being in control. It's like when someone said, you know, I remember someone said, let's go to Mammoth for the day. And there's this airplane these people have with a parachute, whatever, but he wasn't instrument rated. And I said, no, it's like, if I'm going to commercial jet, I'm not worried. Or if you're flying net jet or something like that. Yeah. So there's certain, let's put it this way. If I die on the hill, if I run into a tree or God node or an avalanche, whatever inbounds, that's okay with me. Yeah. But there are certain things I don't want to take a risk doing begging the question other than skydiving, are you a limit tester in other areas? Oh, I, I'll quote my good friend JT, who he has been on 60 Minutes twice. Um, I think both times with Anderson Cooper AC. And he was asked a question similarly by Anderson Cooper. Are you a, an adrenaline junkie? Um, maybe a different, maybe a second cousin to your question, right? But right. pretty close. Same thing. And he said, uh, no, I'm, I'm an adrenaline aficionado. So I don't know if I could say testing limits. I've not had a life full of compliance, but at the same time, I don't necessarily fall into, but I just say that maybe, I'm not too sure I think about it like that, but uh, I totally well, 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 love have it. You bu have you bungee jumped? Oh, heck yeah. What other extreme things have you done? Well, I don't know. Uh, I, uh, gosh, I don't know. I don't know how to define that other than there. I don't see it. Think of them as extreme. They're just things. I fought wildland fire as a, on a shot crew when i was young paid for college maybe, maybe that's seen by extreme is extreme by others but for me it was a great way to make a living running a chainsaw on a on big fires out of southern new mexico and northern new mexico and arizona um oh i've done a quite a bit of uh i was backcountry ranger in rocky mountain national park did quite a bit of high angle rescue that was more industrial climbing because it was rescue than anything else but i think some might see high angle rescue as being a little bit extreme i don't know but I thought it was great. Wait, wait, before you get there. Sorry. You had this near-death experience 10 years ago. Prior to that, had you had any experiences where you were on the line? No. And by the way, I have to say, I found out a year later, it wasn't near-death. I was dead. I was dead for six minutes. Um, that's why it was a good day, right? Because my arm got torn off. They put it back on. I was dead in the helicopter, and they put, brought me back to life. So... And all, October 13th was a great day. Okay, a little bit slower. You jump out of the plane. Yeah. Where are you? What happens? Sure. And by the way, just got to answer one of your five questions there. And that was, I love free fall. When we jump at 14,000 feet AGL, which is an acronym for above ground level. Um, and you typically, we'll come back to that, pull at 4,000 AGL. The in between 14 and 4,000 feet is 10,000 feet of free falling. And it's just one of the most pure condensed joyful things i've ever done in my entire life um it doesn't take a particular uh, a, a great deal of skill uh or athleticism even but it is fucking fun man it is so exhilarating thrilling joy from the first time i jumped um in paris california getting aff i just couldn't stop smiling so i just love it 
absolutely love that. And I don't know if that's testing limits or adrenaline, whatever. It just, all I can do is tell you I love it. But so I was down there, uh, JT and I and other friends would go down and uh, jump down in Lodi quite a bit. We lived in Truckee. I was CEO at Squaw Valley and Alpine Meadows for a little bit. Got hooked into JT, great guy, great, dear friend of mine, and the late great Timmy Dutton, who died sad, tragically a year later in an air-to-air accident, skydiving. The same location um, still breaks my heart to think about Timmy because um, he's a remarkable kid, remarkable young man with an incredible story. He's overcome more than most people have, and he had he was just the best ever. Talk all show long about Timmy Dutton, but um, so Timmy, JT, and I are jumping. Uh, oh, actually, it wasn't this weekend. Um, we were jumping with we were jumping with some other friends. We had gone down to Davis to jump, but the winds were blustery, so we got blown out there. They weren't flying that day on that Saturday, so we drove to Lodi, which is not too far from Davis, I guess. And uh, and Lodi is kind of considered, with a smile on my face, I'd say it's a little bit of the truck stop of drop zones. They kind of are flying and jumping all the time, and um, it's a good place, but it's you know. It's, just there and it works and we ended up getting in a load so what happened is um we ended up uh in classic three or four cloaked things in sequence took place uh, because we have a fair amount of experience jumping we jumped out of the plane late the last group jumping number two is the pilot flew a slightly bad jump line number three importantly the winds changed folded about 120 degrees from the time we took off to the time we got to 14,000 feet AGL and the green light came on to jump. Um, and then the last thing is uh, because JT and Timmy and I had jumped quite a bit and those guys base jump, we tend to pull low. So instead of pulling at 4,000 feet AGL, which gives you a fair amount of time to remedy problems like a bad wing, a bad canopy or something like that, or spiral kick out of twisted lines, you have time to remedy, but we're pretty competent. And uh, there's that whole confidence, competent breakover curve. Um, and I violated that curve right there, pulled low um, on a day I shouldn't have. And it turns out the entire plane was a, it was a D-Day landing. Everybody was scattered. But by the time I pulled, it was at 1,200 feet AGL, pretty close to the ground under canopy. And I didn't, nobody realized that the winds had folded at that point, including me. And that's why it was a D-Day landing. Everybody went ev- everywhere. So I got my canopy up, got a good wing. I'm looking, I'm going, oh, crap. I have a headwind right now and I should have a tailwind. And when you don't have propulsion, like in airplanes, this matters. And so uh, you, you take off from and you seek to land on the drop, drop zone. Um, now I'm aiming at the drop zone under canopy at, say, 1,000 feet AGL, and your descent rate's pretty decent. Um, and I have a set of power lines in front of me, um, in front of me and to the right, and a couple buildings. And I remember thinking, I think this is crack up, um, that it's, you know, skydiving, unlike skiing, for instance, there's not much of a gradient of injuries, right? In other words, skiing, you can hurt yourself a little bit or a lot. In skydiving, it's pretty binary. There's not much to it, right? All I could think about was the the headline kind of the skydiver tried to make it underneath the power lines, right? End up like one of those bugs on a bug zapper. Okay, that went through my mind was, nope. So I looked down to my left and now I'm about 900, 800. Things move pretty quickly in this moment. Ended up hook turning, so flying my canopy, pull hard left, and hook turned into what turned out to be a vineyard. And if you didn't know it, in vineyards, they have these very high tensile, strong wires hold up the vines. And I'm lining up this landing. I'm pretty decent under canopy, and you can land. I'm lining it up, 
still a bit of a blustery day, but I'm like, okay, pull this off. Nothing panicky in my mind at this point. But right as I'm flaring, which is you've flown enough to know when you land an airplane to see the pilots put down the flaps. So when you flare a canopy, it's the same effective thing as, as a plane pulling the flaps down, right? Basically, bring yourself to a close and land on your feet. Well, right as I'm flaring, this, I remember catching out of the front left risers on my canopy, my parachute, pushed about foot to the right. And I'm landing in between these rows of vines. And uh, by God, if that little foot, it feels like a foot, maybe it was more, pushed me enough right, right at the right time where whoosh, um, one of those high tensile wires caught my arm, pulled it off and, uh, and uh, at, the, at the elbow. And uh, yeah, that's, that's okay, how Okay, just, just so I understand. Cover that okay? Was it completely detached? It was detached at the elbow and there was this thin strip of tissue, turns out very valuable thin strip of tissue that was there. But yeah, no, my, my forearm and right hand were kind of on the ground. ground. I was kneeling because the shrouds of my canopy were held up behind me on the vines. And uh, yeah, so yeah, it was detached minus a shred of tissue. And I, I have to mention this because I, again, I think it's, I look back with, it worked out really well that day. It worked out great. And, uh, but I reached down. Um, I'll talk about all that. I did, a, I've done a bunch of work in trauma, right? I've been around trauma. And there's a question you asked me about eight minutes ago that I not answered, but I have, Never had anything like this have happened to me, but I've treated a whole lot of people in bad places and trauma, climbing accidents, car accidents, you name it. I've done a whole bunch of stuff in trauma. I've been in the blood. I have a, a shtick, if you will. Um, and so, but never uh, in this case with myself, if I had something like this. So um, I hadn't clicked into that gear yet, but I reached down right when it happened. I looked down and you ever see that Monty Python movie, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail? Of course. Remember when the, the knight cuts off his arm and his blood spurting out? Yeah, yeah. That was me. It was spurting out, man. It was it was going after it. And I uh, hope that it doesn't gross out some of your listeners. Not, maybe. Uh, maybe it does. This is audio. I, you got to put yeah. the mental images. So, uh, so re- first thing I did was reach down and grab my right forearm with my left hand and tried to reattach it, tried to put it back. <laughs> tried to put it back into the elbow socket and that didn't work bob it didn't work it didn't stay i was bummed about that but then uh, then the the next you know eight ten minutes were interesting to say the least witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as infinity presents a new chapter in luxury the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. 
But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to reuse hotels and resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Okay, unfortunately, I've been injured a number of times. Usually, whatever the science is, you don't feel the pain for a while. When did you ultimately feel the pain, if ever? Yeah, I want to hear more about your injuries. I'm sorry for that. <laughs> Hopefully, you had somebody good on you. Well, you know, listen, I'm here now, but keep going. Good, good, good. How, how long until you... Uh... So, yeah, it was... You're right. And I couldn't say that I felt pain, but... I don't know, maybe a few, I would say moments, and I lose track of time because I wasn't tracking right. it. I felt some pain because um, when you have that kind of, I had a stub basically, my humerus bone sticking out and bleeding out pretty well. And I'll go back and provide you some other interesting stories about Ed Vedder's song, Just Breathe, that came in, my background experience and more. Because it's quite critical how these things in a crazy way converged into one moment in my, my mind. Um but I did feel pain when I took my fist because I couldn't make a tourniquet. Um, I, I just I had a great tourniquet on my left hand, an altimeter. I had a Velcro strap, but I couldn't get it off to put it back on the stub. Um, so, so as most anybody who's listening has any trauma experiences with you have that kind of bleeding, there's two things, tra- tourniquet or direct pressure. In this case, I took my fist and put it underneath my stub and slowed down the bleeding. And that was painful. I have to say, uh, in the past, I've said that that was a fair amount of discomfort, but I think it'd be fair to call it pain. At that point, I felt the pain. Okay, so you're in this situation. You're aware enough to try to stanch the bleeding. What's going through your mind? How does the Just Breathe song come along, and how long till somebody gets to you? Yeah. So, after I tried to put my my arm back in, and it didn't work, I was able to do, I was now kind of in my EMTI mode, EMT mode and did an assessment, a quick assessment of situation. First thing to think about is mechanisms. Was there anything else wrong with my body? No. Neck, head, anything like that? No. Good. Um, so then what's, what's glaringly obvious is that I'm bleeding. And now I do some quick calculations more in my clinic or trauma mode of how fast I'll bleed out with that. Now, there are arteries that we can sever that will bleed out a lot faster. But this one's pretty on the top five, right? The one that runs down your arm. And, uh, uh, and, and particularly because I had a slightly accelerated heart rate at this point. So 
uh, leaning out, and I remember thinking, I think I might have about eight minutes. And that was before I staunched the blood, maybe eight minutes, the blood flow uh, coming out and uh, was able to slow that down. I thought, okay, maybe I bought myself another couple, three, but, but point being in that first component, that first element of the situation, I was in that full trauma mode. Um, and that was kind of the first component. It was like, okay, interesting, uh, to say the least. There was a little bit more to it, but that's probably a good way to tie off on that. What's then interesting is I flash back to all of my experience, uh, both High Angle Rescue, Rocky Mountain National Park, um, and a volunteer fire and ambulance crew in Northwest Colorado, everything gunshot wounds to, uh, meaning from hunting, um, and you name it. And almost every paramedic, every EMT has their shtick, and they come up on you, and you probably, if you've had this, hey, Bob, my name's Andy. Right. I'm medically trained. I'm here to help you. I want you to, right? And right, right, exactly. Stick. They're very calm, very direct. And, and usually that's to gain information quickly, including meds and all that shit stuff if you're uh, AO time, uh, alert, awake, and oriented. Um, and in this case, uh, you issue something that's like, Bob, I want you to just pay attention to me. All I want you to do is breathe. Just breathe, man. That's all you're going to do. Two reasons for that. Number one, it gives, in this case, a person in a bad place something to think about which is good regardless of where they are in terms of enjoying or enduring pain. But number two, critically, the goal there is to keep shock away because shock in and of itself is a psycho, psychosomatic, psycho, psych, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's, it's a bodily reaction that is both mental, emotional, as well as physical to protect the body and shock will kill you. Shock kills so many times because it does things to your heart rate, your blood and more. So I went into this motive, I have to keep shock away. And that was part of the tail end of the clinical side. And my whole thing, and it's, it's not uncommon, it's probably seven out of 10 EMTs and paramedics have just breathe. Bob, I just want you to breathe. And just breathe um, came into my brain. I'm not kidding you, Bob. It was like a meteor out of the heavens into my brain. The tune came into my head that I just was learning on the guitar a few months ago. I was not aware of it till the Buck Brannaman song or movie, my good friend Buck. And uh, it really helped me a ton because at that point, there was not much more I could do. I had stuffed my fist underneath the humerus, slowed down the bleeding as much as I could. And then I was in waiting game because I couldn't do anything else because my shrouds were caught up in the vines behind me. And uh, Marma's forearm was sitting there and that song came to me. And what's interesting is I was applying to myself these words that I had applied to 150 other people in rough spots, really tough spots. Um, some of them, and I'll finish on, off on that tale with this, the helicopter, make it to the helicopter is a really important element. Um, but that tune came to me and which I can tell you, it's to me, it's remarkable and fascinating. I've never had anything like this ever happened to me my entire life. It was this convergence, um, the bland in my mind. And the first, if, if you know the song, yes, I understand every life must end. Um, maybe not exactly, you know, kind of Mr. Rogers, Disney, Sesame Street, happy words when you're sitting there dying. And at this point, I think I'm think I'm pretty sure I had like a couple, three minutes left. But the words gave me something to think about or the, the, the words myself, but then the lyrics gave me something to consider as I 
sit alone. I know someday we must go. And incredibly powerful stuff, Bob, man. I got to tell you, um, I had never considered, I always knew about the risk of skydiving, done stuff, and but never been in this place. And I guess the, the punchline of the whole thing is I was certain I was going to die. Of that, it was a clinical thing. It wasn't any kind of, it was just a clinical straight up deal. I'm not going to make it. There's nobody anywhere near because it's a D-Day landing. Everybody's scattered. And nobody even knows I'm here in this vineyard. And those lyrics came to me. And, and Bob, they, they helped me come to peace with something I'd never even considered. And that was dying. Okay, it helped me come to peace with death. And that made everything perfect. And I was at peace in those three, four moments. Three, four minutes, five minutes. And that meant everything. So I slowed down my breathing, deep breathing, and I kept cycling through those lyrics. And I don't, I've listened to a couple of your podcasts and I try and think most folks try to be polite and try not to cuss a lot, but fucking amazing what that song did that afternoon because the song kept me alive. And um, it did. There's zero doubt in my mind because it played a role on the psychology of trauma psycho all the psychological aspects of trauma what it can do to people and it just stemmed from me saying just breathe because that was my shtick for being amt and didn't know the song until the buck movie and uh gosh i don't 12 15 minutes later a gal named amanda came to me and i she had not had any experience with trauma so i felt badly because she hadn't had any experience with trauma and but i had asked her to kind of coach her through form forming a uh, a tourniquet out of my altimeter and that really helped a lot because then i was able to move my left fist out of my armpit um and then i don't know however many minutes later uh ambulance crew came up uh they had somebody had already dispatched flight for life out of uc davis um and so uh i'll just complete the story and you can unpack it as you see fit amanda shapes this uh creates this tourniquet end up getting backboarded I also think it was a little bit interesting because it was a volunteer crew from Lodi, California. It was working on me and I was somewhat coaching them through this, which was kind of freaking some of those guys out because they went to put oxygen on me because I said, guys, I need some O2. And they put a nasal cannula on me. And I said, guys, I'm, I think I'm down quite a few quarts. Do you think you could put a mask on me and crank it to seven? And I remember the guy looking at me like, the hell? <laughs> what the hell? And and they went to put a seat collar on me. I said, look, there's no mechanism on the neck, but it's cool. Put a seat collar, put a seat collar on me. I said, no, dude, you're putting a size two on me? I'm not 12. And so I'm coaching them through. Again, I thought it was funny, but um, maybe in retrospect it is. Uh, then I hear the turbines of the helicopter. They backboard me, get me set. And it turns out they had to a rubber tire vehicle in the ambulance to the landing, landing zone for the helicopter. And flashback to my days in Rocky Mountain National Park, there was lots of times we put people uh, on overnight rescues in Long Peak, um, Long's Peak and other climbs that honestly we would stabilize them, transport them, get them to a, a good spot and then package them up, get them on the helicopter and then fly them down to Denver. And there was three out of five times there were people that was like, no way they're going to make it. I'm not kidding you. No way. That Tragically, that guy's a goner. Too much trauma, blood loss, you name it, internal injuries. 
And it's just amazing, amazing high five and the tip of the hat to any paramedics that are flying. Um, the flight nurses that are in these helicopters do amazing things. And those three, all those folks, most of them that I know about, they lived because of the flight nurses. And so that came to me as things were, they got the right seat color on me, got some O2 and I'm making my way. And um, I kept singing the tune. By this point, JT was on me and he was giving me encouragement. Um, and uh, he said, you kept singing the song. We couldn't quite make it out. To me, I was singing it out loud. It was Ed Vedder's song, Just Breathe, the entire thing. And because it meant so much to me at that point, I realized how the value of that song. But inside I was thinking about, if I can make it to the helicopter, I have a shot. Because I had done that so many times with others. I might have a shot. Because at that point, I was starting to get the shroud, you know, whatever. The, I was starting to go. I was starting to go leave <laughs> for good. One-way trip. Einbeinstrasse. And, uh, but I figured if I could make it to the helicopter, there's a shot. And fucking A, man. Made it to the helicopter. Um, they slammed the doors. I'll never forget my friend asking the flight nurse who had his visor down, think you'll make it. And the guy goes like this. He shook his head no. And I looked up and I said, I'm right here. I'm sitting right here. <laughs> and uh, they slammed the door. They crank up the turbines, blinding lights uh, from the sun. And I was like, I looked up to the guy and I said, I put fucking everything I could into getting here. And it's all on you now. I got nothing left to give I, on this fight. It was, a, it was a 15, 20 minute fight to get to that moment. Uh, apparently I died about a minute and something later. Um, and the, this guy brought me back. Amazing, freaking amazing. I just love it. So October 13th this year and a couple of weeks, I'll be going out to Paris, California and jumping to celebrate my 10 year anniversary with a couple of dear friends, including JT Holmes, another good friend who's a Navy SEAL who stepped off uh, about two years ago, Zach Armstrong. And we're going to go celebrate my alive day because I was dead and I'm not. And I'm alive and I have an arm. Okay. A couple of things. Have you been jumping in between this time? I haven't. Today, how good is your arm? Uh, it's exceptional because it's there. Took 32 surgeries to reattach it, rebuilt it. Um, I left my bicep out there. I don't have a bicep. My triceps got trashed. Uh, my hand kind of works as back to that little strip that was still there. Um, how good is it? I don't know how to say it other than it's there and it functions plenty good enough for me to do most everything. Can you type? Yes. And, uh, I know this is a podcast, but yeah. Full motion here. Okay. It's like a doctor will say most injuries are caused by overuse and a lot of bad situations are a result of bad judgment. Oh yeah. Replaying this story. Was bad judgment involved? Absolutely. And the follow-up question is how? Right. Um, I mentioned earlier about confidence and competence. And when the confidence-competence curve is largely in line, right, with any activity, including jumping, you tend to be in a decent spot because your competence comes from training, experience. Your competence comes from execution uh without going too much deeper into that but in this case my confidence was probably outstripping and then creating a, a deficit of judgment and probably the major deficit in judgment there the problem was 
thinking I was too cool for school and pulling low. Had I pulled at 4,000, 3,000 instead of 1,000 because I was jumping with all these other guys, probably would have been able to rectify and remedy the situation in a different situation. In other words, if I had been, instead of 1,000 feet with a tailwind, I might have been at 4,000 feet with a tail, tailwind or 3,500 feet with a tailwind and been able to make it over the power lines and not be a headline or choose some other landing uh, area other than vineyards. But I, w- I was presented with what I was presented with. And uh, in that case, it was not good judgment on my part. Okay, usually when something this traumatic happens, you get cancer, you have a near-death experience, uh, for a period of time, you're so thrilled to be alive that it changes your perspective, but that tends to wear off. So, it's 10 years later and you have the anniversary, but how long did this affect your outlook and to what degree does it affect your outlook today? (laughs) Not surprisingly, a very informed question. Uh, spent, oh gosh, I don't know, five months in the hospital, something like that, in and out of ICUs and a um, whole bunch of surgeries. Ended up having to replicate the first round of surgeries that I had because they didn't take. Um, they took veins out of my legs, inverted them, became my humerus uh, skin from my legs. My lats are taken out, rebuilt, uh, the arm, all that kind of stuff. And uh, in that case, it was just about trying to, I mean, hell, I didn't know make it through that so phase one was glad to be here um what's going on now and what's the next surgery what are we trying to get done going i became quite good at surgery um as i have a pretty good shtick when it comes to the anesthesiologist here's what to do here's a size tube to intubate me um surgeries longer than eight hours put goop in my eyes because anyway uh made it through that then getting out was the next six months after hospital was in in uh, all kinds of PT, and my arm was still the size of a rugby ball because swelling. I still had ongoing surgeries. It went on for a little while, but it'd be fair to say that I was pretty heavily medicated, Bob. And the meds were uh, meds on board were oxycontin, oxycodone, and gabapentin, which is a nerve med. And uh, th- in that time frame, it was still about cool that I'm here, great that I'm here, encouragement from friends. Um, everybody from Jeremy Jones to JT Holmes, famous people and not famous people. I didn't care. I was just encouraged, glad. But then, um, the darkness, you know, Tolkien fan, the darkness of Mordor set in. And I don't know if it's probably a combination of things, but the reality is I started getting pretty down, pretty effing depressed. I came into the jump pretty fit. I was working out, running, traveling, all kinds of stuff. But now it's me i was 145 pounds i was weak i had no muscle and i was working with one pt guy um who's outstanding he said andy i can see you're bummed but uh you know there's a million things you can still do there's about seven things you used to do you can no longer do what are you going to focus on and that helped pick me up but the long tail to be truthful um is that for the next year to two years i had a pretty damned good excuse to ask for some help with pain and i had doctors that were excellent doctors who were prescribing me opiates to help with that pain and it'd be fair to say that i was i had a very difficult time stepping off of the opiates as well. how did you do it oh gosh how did i do it um first was i was in at a meeting in jackson hole wyoming and uh saw this tv show and i didn't know this bob i kind of lived in a bit of a cave uh in some ways I watched this network show of news deal on how uh, if some of the heroin addicts 
uh, let's, let's face it, in the rural West, there's challenges everywhere, right? And that includes, this is kind of pre-fentanyl, I guess, in some ways. But um, they talked about heroin addicts will get um, Oxycontin, Oxycodone if they can't get heroin. And, um, and it was staggering to me. It scared the shit out of me. I've not done drugs my entire life. I'm that guy. I wear Wranglers. I work with horses. I all that kind of stuff. Copenhagen tequila. Never had any need to do drugs. Never did. Um, in this case, I was scared shitless, and I stopped for a bit. But then, ended up a couple months later, a couple bouts with pain. Get back in them. Um, and basically, it was to help support the words of JT, JT Holmes, and other folks around me to get off it. And then there's all there's two guys. They didn't know it. Two guys um, who at the time were with uh, Navy SEAL Team 4, Troop 2, that remain very dear friends of mine to this day. Uh, Commander Ryan Hall and uh, Zach Armstrong, who's stepped off. Uh, and they caught wind through an interesting intersection with those guys of what my circumstance was. And they basically, without necessarily saying it, knowing it, they challenged me to get off my ass and stop being a pussy and stop being a victim and get my shit together, get fit again. And I, I couldn't use the word inspired, but I was driven by those guys to get better. And part of that was physically get physically fit again and get off that, off those meds. Um, different times here and there, I found, I realized that those things are freaking powerful. And um, also was in that camp of, it's a lame version of the John Wayne thing. Why take some oxycodone without some Jack Daniels, right? So Jack and O. And uh, so it was a bad deal, uh, truthfully. So there's a couple, three years in there where I was in a bad spot. And, uh, but I pulled out the friend JT and others and also pulled out the friends, uh, Commander Ryan Hall and Zach Armstrong. Um, got back into riding my bike. First time I got on a bike, I'd ridden bikes, raced bikes for parts of my life. I rode for two miles and was exhausted. It was so, I was like, holy crap, you gotta be kidding me. But then stuck with it because these guys got my shit together, got off those, had a couple more bouts, but I've been able to step off without going to any other clinics or anything like that. So that's how. So as we sit here right now, are you in pain? No. I can find it if you want me to pretty no. easily, but no. Okay. So where are you from originally? I am a product of the U.S. Air Force. My dad was a fighter pilot. I was born in West Germany back when there was a West and an East Germany, right? You and I know this. Now, there are folks under the, you know, <laughs> reminding them, hey, there used to be a West. I'm not talking Western Germany. Um, so West Germany and then lived in Scotland when my dad would go overseas to fight in the war. Fly, he flew his uh, flew F4 Phantoms. In fact, I'm burying him later this week up in Montana. Wow, um, your, your father just died? Died about a year and a half ago, and I have his remains. His wishes were free for me as a, a young, a new, new pilot to fly his ashes over the Grand Teton National Park. So I'm doing that on Thursday afternoon. Um, and so, yeah, excited to do that and get, get that to honor his wishes. But um, so, son of fighter pilot. Scotland, Germany, Germany, Scotland, and then I think it was about 10 or so moved to southern New Mexico, lived in southern New Mexico for a while, Holloman Air Force Base, um, and then we moved to Virginia, Langley Air Force Base, and then my dad retired, and we ended up moving around, but I've been in, I was in Colorado since 79, moved to Colorado. Was in what Colorado. year were you born? 63. Okay, so typical Air Force brats can get along with anybody because they've been moving so much and they're yeah. relatively self-reliant. Would that describe you? 
Yeah, I, I the only thing is, I resist the I re, rebut. What's the word? I reject uh, the word brat. I was a prideful son of a fighter pilot. He wasn't much of a dad, but he was a kick-ass air combat warrior. Um, and I respect him greatly for that. And I don't think he would have ever called me a brat. <laughs> well, that's but a comment, I, you know, know, as I say, Bob, sorry Bob. for the judgment, oh, but, come on. you know, that's a, I am you know, a term. totally kidding you. Totally. No, no problem. Okay. Totally. So but so, so the point being is, um, I call it chameleon. When you're, when you grow up in that environment, different cultures, you learn how to chameleon into different places. And the answer is yes. I feel like I can fit in almost anywhere I can. I may not look like I'm from there, but I can usually figure it out. And I'm, was spent a year and a half in Saudi Arabia, Northwest Saudi Arabia, about two years ago, and was great there, comfortable there. It was a little bit warm, but yeah, good to go. Okay, siblings? I have an older sister. This is a big thing for you, isn't it? The family thing. Well, you want to know where someone comes from. We got yeah, a yeah. lot of territory to cover. Sure. I won't I won't exactly go into why I ask all those questions, cool. but, you know, in birth order, those things really matter. So when was the first time you skied? When I was in, we were in Southern New Mexico. And there was a little ski area near uh, due east of Almogordo. Uh, at that time, it was called Sierra Blanca, and it was owned by the Mus Mescalero Apache Indian tribe. And uh, learned how to ski there as part of a, you know, I don't know, it was somebody grabbed me. I think out of, uh, you know, no dads are on the Air Force base. It's all a tactical air command base, all the, the squadrons overseas. And so I have no idea it took me, but went skiing up at, uh, near Rio Doso. In southern new mexico first time i skied was there but then really got into it in uh college fort collins before Colorado. you get to college was the type of thing you did once and the heavens opened this is my thing or did it take a while to be that invested somewhere in between i couldn't say there was an epiphany or a light bulb or heavens open uh the clouds parting uh, but at the same time i was like this is great um also keep in mind that although the desert is certainly fun for a kid when you're 10 chasing lizards and stuff you get up to this environment and you're up mountains and loved that, right? And spent some time in the mountains in, in Scotland and Germany. But I, I did love it. I loved being in that environment and I loved trying something new. And so I, yeah, I, I, I did enjoy it. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other. As Infinity presents... A new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. 
But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder. Or find a featured all-inclusive package to Iberostar Star Hotels and Resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Okay, so tell me about getting back into it seriously in college. Colorado State University, go Rams, um, was was there and it's just what we did. Fort Collins, Colorado, if you know Colorado, which I think you do, mm-hmm. we would scheme uh, Winter Park Mary Jane for the day, but then we would go to Steamboat for the weekends because you take a northerly route through the Cashlapooter River down into Walden and across into Steamboat. So um, I just totally dug on it, just got way into it. and. Uh, freshman year on just going up with friends went to park mary jane for the day and steamboat for the weekend loved it okay loved it. so you ultimately work at steamboat you graduate yeah. from college what are your first jobs and how do you end up at steamboat yeah completely by accident i was uh formative elements to answer that question are critical i was a backcountry ranger in my command national park my grandfather ran the national park service for three presidents eisenhower kennedy and johnson and i Grew up in a family where he was the patriarch of the family, Conrad Worth, um, you know, respected, sorry, respected, revered, remarkable man. Did incredible things post-World War II for our national parks. And I grew up in that environment. In fact, was reading the works of Aldo Leopold, Santa Sound County Almanac, and, uh, you know, certainly John Muir. I mean, I grew up in, some folks grew up in households with football teams, religions. Mine was conservation preservation and the works of john muir and Aldo leopold and these great people who established this culture and thinking of care for the lands preservation conservation mean different things but i was aiming that direction and uh couldn't quite pay for college uh doing the rock the ranger thing so they shifted gears to fighting wildland fire on a initial attack crew a type one crew in new mexico and uh loved that i was a sawyer on a shot crew and made a whole bunch of money doing that. I loved that work too. Loved that work. Still miss it. Um, and the crew that we was with, but um, couldn't see a career developing out of either of those deals. But I certainly loved the mountains. Uh, was headed to grad school. Was actually accepted to a really nice uh, university up in Northern California. To study what? I was going to get my MBA. Okay. Yep. I had shifted and uh, took a whole bunch of business classes. Took the LSATs, um, figured I was, I know you were an attorney. I thought about right. becoming an attorney, went, nah. 
ended up getting my, I was headed to get my MBA, uh, applied to and was shocked to get accepted to a very high-end program. I, I freaking hate name dropping, so I'm not going to say it, but it was a really nice school in Northern California. And, uh, but then all of a sudden somebody told me I needed to, uh, my counselor said, Hey, by the way, you need to do an internship to complete your undergraduate degree. And they're going to need, you're going to have to have that before you start school at getting your MBA. It's like, oh crap. At that time I was on the crew team rowing for this school and I had gone over to Europe and to a year in Scotland, University of Edinburgh, to study history and economics there, um, worked for my uncle on weekends up in the Highlands, came back, was now extended a little bit because some of the trip credits didn't transfer long story short is was headed that direction crap i got to do this internship what the hell and uh just aircraft carrier slammed into an internship at steamboat ski area uh june 2 of 1986 i started and uh, it was quite by accident it was completely velcroed and duct taped together and it was just to punch a you know to check off a box and uh, turns out, dumb luck. A lot of my, it's been good fortune, dumb luck, but I, I can work pretty hard. But at the same time, I'm never the smartest person in the room in this case. I was the only person in this entire company at Steamboat who knew how to run these new things called spreadsheets. It was Lotus 1.12X. And I became, as an intern, because I was there willing to do anything, it was an unpaid internship. So I worked internship from 8.30 a.m. to 5. I was racing road bikes too. So I'd train. And then try and sleep for a few hours. And then I'd work at midnight as a nighttime monitor at a hotel in Steamboat to try and make some money because internship didn't pay. Um, but it was like hell bent to get it done a couple months. And uh, so go in. But in that period of time was able to become uh, uh, welcomed, I guess you could say, by the CFO, the VP of marketing, the president of the company. And through that work with Excel I ended up by the end of the internship, they said, hey, why don't you stay here and work for us for a couple of years, then go get your MBA. Into which case I'll never forget thinking, well, this is cool. I get to right now, at least combine my love of living in the mountains, skiing, and some kind of viable work in making money, doing something other than Heingel uh, rescue or fighting wildland fire. And um, it was completely by accident, Bob, that I ended up in the ski business. And that's how Okay. Needless to say, you never left for MBA school. That's right. If you work in the ski business, frequently you don't ski that much. <laughs> so you're working at Steamboat. How many years were you at Steamboat? Uh, 20, just under 20 years. How much did you actually ski? If you were there for 20 years, you moved up the corporate ladder. It points extremely well made. And the answer is always never as much as you want and never as much as people think, uh, to your point. And gosh, I don't know. I would. I loved it. I loved Steamboat. I loved Champagne Powder Snow. It's really light, dry snow that falls very uniquely in a few places. You were a little Cottonwood guy at some point, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. And there's very few place, places on the planet where snow falls with that level, that humid, that uh, moisture content, right? And go techie on you if you want there. But um, loved it. And I don't know. I'm probably skied 25, 35 times a year, but I was definitely working hard. And so... I quickly ended up with a family and a couple stepkids and ended up um, uh, with a place north of Steamboat, a little horse ranch north of Steamboat, about 18 miles. So I ended up working two, sometimes three jobs just to pull things together. So I didn't ski much because of that. Whoa, 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 whoa. If you're working for the corporation, what are the other jobs you're doing? I was pretty handy with a chainsaw. So on weekends, I'd go help a fella who had a business where he was 
uh, clearing brush and clearing out places for people. And I was a kind of a hard worker and could work a saw pretty well. So I did that. Um, I also would pick up, pick up different kind of miniature, mini consulting jobs with folks using my spreadsheet skills and some modeling called quantitative analytics. Um, and those weren't particularly taxing, but they took a lot of time. Okay. Who owned Steamboat when you started? Yeah. Great, great guy by the name of Martin Hart and a consortium of other owners. And that was in 86. He ended up selling it in 89 to a Japanese group called Komori Kanko. And uh, because of my spreadsheet skills and quantitative quant, I was a bit of a quant, um, I got pulled pretty quickly into the transaction and running the analysis, sorry, running analysis and, and the like uh, to help facilitate that transaction. So, um, yeah, it was Martin Hart, wonderful gentleman, great guy, deep roots in the steamboat community. He was on the board at Pepsi, for instance, PepsiCo and others, just brilliant guy. A lot of roots in Steamboat. And then Kamori Kinko, Japanese group out of Sapporo bought it. And I'll stop there. I think I've answered your question. Okay. So <laughs> when you left, who owned it? Uh, when I left? Yeah. Oh, uh, that was, uh, okay, now fast forward. So it's Kamori Kinko, uh, and then we bought Heavenly, uh, and now I have to recreate this in my mind. Uh, and then it was American Skiing Company, Les Houghton. Uh, the canyons, and I had some responsibility for a bunch of resorts. On that, in that case, um, you're from New England, yeah. Originally? So I ended up um, pretty close to moving to Bethel, Maine, to work with American Ski Company. Right. It was like, man, this is a pretty cool town. Nothing in my life had I seen like it was like a, a TV, a movie set, like the town square and all that. Ended up not going there, but um, Amer American Skiing Company, um, and we ended up. Uh, long story short, ended up selling it to a group called Fortress Investment Group, large PE firm. They might have nowadays probably two, three hundred million billion under management. In that case, a guy named Wes Edens uh, was one of the four founders of Fortress. He was a skier. He went to Montana State undergraduate, ski racer. Then he went to Harvard, got his MBA, then off to the races. But he was hell-bent for owning Steamboat. He also contemporaneously was working on the transaction with buying IntraWest, which was a Canadian-owned company. Sold on the Toronto Stock Exchange, the TSX. So he bought Fortress, bought Interwest at the same rough time, bought Steamboat. I was a big part of that transaction and uh, was there for a little bit. And then it got pulled up to Vancouver to work with the parent up there, the parent company up in Vancouver, Canada, and had a just great time up there because they was 48 or an hour, 48 minutes away from Whistler, skied, got up there as much as I possibly could. Um, and went back and forth between Steamboat and Vancouver. And uh, I stepped off Steamboat, stepped out of Steamboat in 2010 um, as part of a unique circumstance with Squaw Valley to acquire Squaw Valley. Okay. You worked at Squaw Valley for how many years total? Shoot. Uh, seven, I think. And when was the last year you were there? I believe it was 2017, but I reserve the right to be wrong. Okay. <laughs> so... There's been an incredible modernization in Olympic Valley. There's mm. been the gondola between Alpine and Squaw. Yeah. How much of that was in place in terms of plans before you got there? Uh, none. So that is something, let's just talk about the link between Alpine and Squaw. That has yeah. been something that's bandied about for decades. How did you finally make that happen? I'll give you as brief an answer as I can. So I took the role. 
running C- as CEO of Squaw Valley. Prior to that, a year prior, I'd gone down to Squaw Valley with an asset manager from Fortress to buy it. Um, got to know the asset, if you will allow me to talk, not like a skier for a moment and more like a PE guy for a moment. Um, I have as much passion for mountains as skiing as anybody, but at the same time, I had a role. And got to know the business pretty well. But at that time, the, uh, the widow of Alex Cushing, kind of the, kind of the founder, one could argue the Polsons founded it. I think they'd be right in that assertion. But um, Nancy Cushing uh, was only willing to sell at that time 42% of the company, which was a no-go. But in the meantime, learned a lot about it. And it was, whoa, this is an incredible mountain, incredible mountain. A year later, got a call out of the clear blue sky from a, a CEO that I knew from American Skiing Company, interestingly enough, and some family litigation had been settled. And uh, Nancy Cushing no longer had controlling interest of the company. Part of the settlement was that uh, she was now a minority shareholder, and I was asked to come out and be CEO of Squaw Valley uh, at that time. And what this is I'm not necessarily a scoop, but first time really discussed this publicly. What uh, some of the family members had asked, what's it take to get you here? And I said, well, really, this is a place where careers go to die. Um, and I love the mountain. And I love the area, such incredible mountain. But from a career perspective, I'm on a pretty good track. Um, I know the asset really well. I know what could happen here. Why would I to do this? And they said, what's it taking? I said, well, honestly, this place needs new ownership more than anything else. And they said, can you help us with that? And I said, yeah, past 10 years, I've been working in the strategic side of things, or as George Bush would say, the strategic side of things. Right. Um, so in this case, uh, I said, yeah. If you guys want me to line up a transaction with this place, I guarantee I can line it up. So before taking the role and just on a handshake, I had lined up transaction, a prospective buyer. Turns out it was a group called the KSL Capital Partners based out of Cherry Creek, Colorado. They were number two behind Fortress and acquiring Steamboat. So I knew them pretty well. Couple of former Vail guys were running the show. Three Vail guys were Vail Associates guys running the show down there. Knew them pretty well. And I started August two, and I think it was by September tenth, I had a an exclusive letter of intent in hand from KSL interested in acquiring Squaw Valley. Ended up com- uh, a very sophisticated financial a group on one side, and a something not that on the other side with Squaw Valley. I was brand new. I didn't know much, frankly. But was able to push that transaction through where we closed on the transaction, I think October 15, October 20th. So in about 30, 45 days, closed on the transaction, which is lightning speed in almost any case, and then 173 million bucks um, on that transaction. And uh, celebrated for about 15 minutes, went for a few turns, then immediately turned my attention to Alpine Meadows, turned on my heels, started reaching out to the PE group, small PE group, out of California called JMA, uh, JMA, um, based out of San Francisco, uh, to inquire about buying Alpine Meadows. And so was able to line up a transaction to acquire Alpine Meadows about a year and change later, uh, November 15th, let's see, 11, 11, uh, yeah, 2011, uh, arranged that transaction for that transaction. I think we closed on December 2. And now we have Squaw Valley, Alpine Meadows. And in that meantime, in the meantime, part of the investment thesis and the analytics and the transaction as to the why included, 
yeah, connecting these two mountains is something that would be desirable. We were definitely not, and yours truly was definitely not the first person to consider that, right? There had been lots and lots and lots of stuff that had happened prior, a lot because of Mr. Cushing and some of the ire he had raised with folks that have pretty substantial hold, hold sway in Northern California, including um, Hewlett's. Uh, anyway, so yeah, that's, uh, there's a little bit more to it, but that's the most succinct oh, answer oh, I can okay. give. Okay, for years, you have this guy who owns a piece of land, White Wolf, bought a lift, the towers are installed, been hearing about it for years. That is in the area between Alpine and Squaw. Why was that not rolled into the expansion connection? Troy Caldwell, this guy's name, he's a good pal, good friend. And uh, before, I closed on, before I closed on buying Alpine Meadows, had quite a few meetings with him and said, Troy, just literally over his place with Troy and Susie. Makes, Susie makes great bunt cake, by the way. Um, and we're going we're gonna to complete this transaction. It's really unlikely it doesn't go through without going into too much detail. And the next conversation is a real serious tra- conversation about what's it take to work with you on some means by which to connect the two resorts. It turns out that how Troy ended up getting the land is a fascinating story associated with um, the, uh, I can't remember the name of the, the railway companies used to own most of the land in the West, um, particularly this area. He ended up buying it from the CEO of this railway comp- train company. Um, I can't remember how much he paid for it but it was a below market deal and it was a pretty key piece of land but he was clearly and i say this very respectfully not interested in selling wasn't interested in being part of the transaction like he said he had put up uh on his own accord a couple of lift towers and had intent to make a go of it himself and how could you not freaking respect that guy's got some key land that he got has he acquired he put his heart and soul into it he became a good friend and um so we but we had also initiated well not there's not going to be a transaction here for us to acquire this land what's it look like for us to establish long-term lease and uh we started on that in earnest summer of 11 i think was or fall of 11 and uh it took a little while to design it but it came to pass i guess december this last winter right yeah december this last winter i go into that in great detail more detail if you'd like well, I just don't know. The guy's not going to live forever, mm-hmm. and now people can't ski on it. I mean, isn't it inevitable that it becomes part of Alpine Spa, now called Palisades? You know, what's interesting is, um, you know, I left before I had ex- negotiated over many years and executed a great many contracts, but, but many of those were probably modified or new agreements, and I don't have visibility into those. But I can tell you, the conversations that Troy and I had were respectful. They weren't any kind of, we want to acquire you and all that kind of stuff. It's not how I roll. It's not who I am. It's not how we would do it. It was clearly not how anything good was going to happen anyway. So useful on four fronts. In this case, but those conversations were, Troy, you know, we're not going to be around forever. We all die. Taxes and death, right? And uh, what do you want to have happen to this? this land like we're just you, you, you know to want to put in a foundation trust i'm here to help you right and you got to keep in mind that my my background and my upbringing now is playing a role and i 
there was turns out there was an original ESA uh, Endangered Species Act study that indicated there was a potential impact of a soon to be listed frog, um, and the habitat was a part of this land. And I'd say, well, we'll do, we're going to design around it. My grandfather would reach out of the grave and strangle me like a horror movie if I did anything to impact any endangered species, listed or not. And we did that. Um, and that was the tone and nature of those conversations. And with Troy and him, I, you know, the answer to your question is, I don't know. I don't think so. If Troy kept his same demeanor, he's established a trust or something for that land to to, uh, to advance through. I, but I, I don't know, actually, as of to this day. I can tell you in 2017, the answer would have been, no, it, it's not at all in, inevitable based on what Troy's disposition was okay, all about. Okay, so how does it end with you at Palisades? Oh, you know, I was I was in a point where um, I had played a role in helping build Altera Mountain Company. We now know it was a pass holders called the Icon. We didn't call Altera at that time. Interestingly enough, that whole transaction started with Wes Edens. And I was on the board of the U.S. ski team, as was Eric Resnick, who was the president of KSL Capital Partners. And we were at the New York City Gala, a huge fundraiser for the U.S. ski team, and who's also involved the U.S. ski team is Wes Edens um, on the board of trustees. And he walks up to Eric and me, and I know him quite well, and Eric knows him pretty well. And he says, I, I'm getting long in the tooth on InterWest. I think I might actually be putting the, putting a book out on that and selling it. Are you guys interested? And it, to say it caught, off, caught us off guard would be an understatement. Hit pause. Six months earlier, Mammoth, Barry Sternlich, the guy who had 42% of Mammoth and their other holdings, had put a book out on a book, meaning a confidential inform information memorandum or kind of book out on Mammoth, um, but had wanted a really high multiple, a very high number for that asset. Um, great mountain, incredible mountain, incredible holdings. What they built was incredible there, but just not worth that. Um, so we passed. And then when Wes Edens walked away, Eric and I spent the next two hours talking about, okay, well, hold on. Interwest in this current form, um, was it no longer had Whistler as part of the asset base, but had a lot of great ski areas. And quickly went to the easy side of this, critical word, easy part of this. And that is if you take all these great ski areas, including Steamboat, Winter Park, and others with Interwest, and you have Mammoth and these other resorts, and you have Squaw Valley, at this point, Squaw Valley Ski Holdings, the parent of Squaw Valley Alpine Meadows, maybe there's different perspective. And now there's potentially a critical mass if you can make this all make sense enough critical mass to actually be competitive with Vail Resorts, a very successful company based out of Broomfield, Colorado. And uh, so that's, uh, ended up playing a role in the roll-up strategy, pulling that together, some of the negotiations, some of the trips to all the assets, the presentations, the warm presentations that take place in that classic situation. And yes, skiing these mountains, which I had a great day at skiing everywhere, these places. Uh, including my hometown resort, Steamboat, right? Which, by the way, ironically, I was in Steamboat in the same very room that we had given so many management presentations to prospective owners. Um, but now it was being presented at Steamboat and all the other assets were being presented to me. I thought that was ironic. Um, ended up playing a role in putting that together. And at that stage, Bob, I just was at a point in my career, you know, a lot of stuff had gone on in Squaw Valley, Alpine Meadows, 
I, you know, had, by now had a few years under my belt with the arm and I just had a different perspective on life and hit, hit the, hit the punch out button, flew to Denver and told those guys said, Hey, we want you to come run this company we're building. I said, I, you know, guys, I love, I love, I love these guys at KSL Capital. They're so good. They're so solid. Um, but I'm just not, in, it's not in the cards. It's not in the cards for me. I, uh, yeah, so I punched out. And I also had recently been married to a wonderful lady uh, who runs a company down here in the southern part of Orange County. Um, and I just, I just had kind of worked hard, really hard, like many people, like most people do. And it was time to find a different path. And so I, I punched out at that time. And when you punched out, as you put it, did you have enough money to get you to the end or did you? I, I did, Bob. And, and, you know, I mean it seriously. I don't mean it cliche. I, I, I know how to work hard and I think I might've learned that fighting fire, but I'm barely the smartest guy in the room if ever. And so good fortune and hard work kind of got me to a place where, yeah, things worked out pretty well with the transaction associated with, with evaluation of Squaw Valley Ski Holdings. And I had three tranches of equity and things worked out pretty, really well for me financially. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. 
Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to reu hotels and resorts and do your deal at cheapcaribbean.com. Okay, let's talk about the ski industry in general. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, skiing is a mature sport. And we've had consolidation just like in the live music business and in the recorded music business. But in the 60s, that's when skiing originally blew up. Skiing was hip. Certainly wealthy people skied, but pretty much everybody skied. It was more of a blue collar thing. Ultimately, uh, in the late 80s, we had the transition to high speed lifts, which took really uh, got traction in the 90s, certainly by the 21st century. Those lists were so expensive that they raised tickets, and therefore conventional wisdom is that it cut out a lot of people who didn't want to spend that money. It was seen as more of a wealthy person's Mm -hmm. uh, sport. Then, of course, Vail Associates is purchased by Apollo Rob Katz comes in and runs it after he wants to leave New York City in 2001. And before the decade is out, he comes up with this concept of the Epic Pass. So instead of a season's pass at Vail only or Vail and Beaver Creek, costing between two and three thousand dollars for at the initial price in what, 2008, it was far under a thousand dollars. So, there are a lot of things going on. The plan with American Ski Company, uh, with less odd, and the plan with interest was a real estate play, whereas Vail flipped the script. They yeah. said, no, we're going to make the money on the lift tickets, the ancillary, the skiing, what's on the hill. Of course, most people don't know, in most of the towns where Vail is, they own a lot of the branded shops. See the Patagonia right. shops, see Solomon, and they are involved, involved a little in real estate. It's inevitable, but that is not their main focus. Now, Epic comes along, cleans up, and without going through the transition, going to the ultimate point you make, we end up getting the Icon Pass, such that we have two major players. Icon Pass is a little bit more expensive than the Epic Pass, but not dramatically. A couple hundred dollars. It's irrelevant if those are the ski areas you're going to go to. What do we know? Skier days. And for those who don't know, that's when one person goes to a hill one day, that's a skier day. So if a person skis 60 days a year, it's 60 days. So we're not talking about the quantity of skiers, but the number of times people go on the hill. It stabilized and went up, whereas before it had been, you know, it had gone down, it matured, et cetera. However, there, it's an interesting thing because there's backlash. You and me both know there's yeah. always backlash yeah. with any change. If you want to change a slow lift, fixed grip lift to a high speed lift in a bowl area, you always have the traditionalist saying, don't do that. They want to add a new lift in Jackson right now. Right. Same thing is happening. But the reason I mention all this, to give a little bit of history, take a snapshot of the industry now, okay? what is it mature? Can we have more skiers? I also wanted to talk one step further about the experience. 
Certainly on the Epic Pass, there are very few restrictions. Mm -hmm. There are a few more on the Icon Pass. This has resulted in a lot of publicity about crowding. A lot of it is not true. They'll show a picture on a powder day, people lining up where the lift opens. They'll show people when not that much of the ski area is open. It is nowhere near as crowded as the publicity, but this is seen as a factor. In addition, because of the law and the economics, you essentially can't build a new ski area. Yeah. So what's going to happen? And where are we and where are we going? So you know, as an attorney, you just asked about a 16-fold question, right? The 16 elements to your question. Right. Let me, um, I appreciate everything you just said. Uh, I'm serious, by the way, and I'll address every point that I possibly can. There's one key element you missed on the roll-up on that, um, and that is uh, the cheap pass, the buddy pass thing came about uh, I know for a fact, because I was there. Right, in the front range of Colorado. It was Gary DeFrange running Winter Park. He couldn't make payroll. And he came up with this idea to try and get cash in the door quick. Um, and that was for every four people to buy a pass, you get it for super cheap. And at that time, it was Adam Aaron who came in from United Airlines. And Adam was running bail. Adam, and I, I would contend, I know this to be true, uh, would contend, I would contend that his background in the United and the airline business was a little bit more commodity-based pricing where you lose share if you don't match on price is a simplistic way to put it. Commodity being uh, something that's only differentiated by price. Um, he ends up on Friday afternoon of Gary DeFrange announcing this by Saturday afternoon during the SNEA grab sale, which is a Labor Day sale in Denver, uh, matching. And next thing you know, the, the cheap pass is born. I can't remember how many years later, maybe four, five, six, seven years later, um, after Adam Aaron leaves and shortly thereafter, Rob Katz leaves the board as representative uh, of the group you mentioned. I think they had large component of Vail Associates at that time. Um, this is post-bankruptcy, right? Vail was bankrupt in 92, 93 under Gillette because cross-collateralization, all that jazz. But um, interestingly enough, the KSL guys picked it up, fixed it up, and took it public. But now it's Rob Katz coming in, and he takes something that was uh, the cheap pass thing happened completely by accident. It was a knee jerk, like you read about. I'm not kidding you. It's kind of the, I know this to be true because I was there. <laughs> so expand upon that. Tell and me the, how it just happens. Well, it was Gary French needing to make payroll for Winter Park running. Oh, you mean the original yeah, cheap the original. pass. Yeah. But then Rob Katz came along and said, there's something more here. And he took what was a complete aircraft carrier landing type knee jerk and made it into something a great deal more sophisticated, branded it, called it the Epic Pass, and, and here we are. Uh, your point about business models is particularly relevant. Um, I had my career responsibility for real estate, real estate development, brokerages, scary operations, you know, you name it. Pretty, pretty understanding of that space by the way there's a pretty good analog uh with the music industry in addition to these things that happened there's also the maturation exactly just like in the music business right when bgp gets acquired by i can't remember what group and then sfx sfx turns into exactly. live nation absolutely and and so there was that there was also the maturation of the people running the businesses i'm not saying for better or worse it was just more mature more people, you know, like I mentioned on that email, Bill and Peter Barsodi, I learned from them from BGP. This is after Bill died. 
concert with them and I know the business a little bit. And, you know, those guys were Gen 1 uh, at BGP and the Gen 2, 3, 4. And I don't know the companies like you do. You worked for them with them and helped lead them in this case. But you saw that firsthand. In this case, I saw firsthand the maturation of those working inside the ski business. So it was a little bit more than you mentioned. But the point being is relative to real estate and what drives businesses, it's uh, the going concern principle they teach you in first year business school is really simple. You can't build the business on a long-term basis just on real estate. It will fail because you number one, run out of real estate. Number two, the evolution or the undulations associated with that. And there were those of us who, as an old friend of mine, a boss of mine who went to Mid Middlebury, also Chris Diamond said, stick to our knitting. We're going to do this. We can do this other real estate element, but the real estate, for instance, in Steamboat was meant to be, was a means to an end. And Steamboat, we had done tons of studies and research to understand that we knew there's two, three key factors to our success. Number one, airline seats. Got to have these nonstop seats and from LAX, SFO, Dallas, Fort Worth, all that kind of stuff. The other one is the proper renting of the ski area, pricing, you name it. Third one is available nightly rental pillows. And we had a dearth of those. So we ended up getting into, call it real estate, only because it was a means to an end, not because it was a long-term effort there. There were companies like IntraWest who were built largely upon that. And they weren't successful in the long run. Uh, there, uh, You mentioned another one. American Skiing American Company. American Skiing Company. Uh, they had their Grand Summit Grand Hotels. Summit, and we ended up doing the Steamboat Grand Resort Hotel and Conference Center. Whoo, doggy. You're stumbling back into some memories here, man. Um, and you know your stuff, not surprisingly. But um, that was a darkness uh, in Steamboat when Les was there. There's bumper stickers and you name it. Just stop for one second. Yeah. How long are those Grand Summit Hotels going to last? Depends on which one. Well, I've heard some of them are quite flimsy. It'd be fair to say that the ones, and I got friends still running these resorts, are going to fly out to Montana and beat me up or something, but I don't know. Um, the ones back east are pretty well VE'd, value engineered. At Steamboat Grand, we spent a lot of effort in securing viable, solid setup. Now, the design, physical plant design could have been better, but that one's solid. Uh, the Canyons Grand, um, pretty darn good. So, it depends on which one. You've, it sounds to me like you've stayed in some of the ones well, back you know, east. You know, I've read, I have some people who have ownership interests. It's a fascinating thing. Just to stop at American Skiing Company, Les Otten has been trying to get back into the balsams for years now. Mm. Did it fail because of the macroeconomic situation in America? Or was it inherently flawed plan? Was it too much spending too soon? Was it a focus on real estate or all of that? It was even more simple than that, Bob. I can tell you from the inside out, straight up, straightforward, there was an inexperienced CFO who ended up cross-collateralizing assets and put the company in a very, very, very difficult position when it came to structuring acquisition or securing companies ski areas and land with capital that was secured through cross collateral collateralized loans, which can feel good for a couple, three days. Um, but as you know, from your business experience, we'll catch up to your ass. And they, those, our ass was caught up and it was covenants blown through and it was bad. It was really bad. So, uh, it was, it was actually a number of factors, but I would, I could make a very, very strong salient. I, I, sometimes I'm asked to, 
uh, speak and do guest lecturing at business schools. It's really fun. I enjoy the heck out of that. But um, in this case, you can look at these three, four, five layers, a little bit like my skydiving accident. There's, usually there's this one prevailing thing. In this case, one prevailing thing was had an inexperienced CFO who, and uh, willingly or knowingly or unknowingly and unwillingly uh, less signed off on this, but it was cross-collateralized loans, uh, debt that, that brought that company to its heels, to its knees, excuse me. Okay. So today, where is the industry yeah. at? Is yeah. there growth? Is there yeah. any consolidation? I mean, just yeah. give me your take. Sure. So inside looking out, uh, I hear the phrase, I've heard the phrase during and after my career in the running ski resorts of consolidation. And honestly, it was there since 86 and it's ebbed and flowed. And so well, the trend towards consolidation, I'm like, well, which, you know, this is about the sixth one I've seen. You can call it a trend. And, and truthfully, it's just like the music industry, right? Kind of, you can say the music industry, just like you say the ski industry, but inside there, your view of this is very unique and informed. There's pockets of those who succeed and pockets of those who do okay and those who don't. And it has to do with their business acumen, their business model, their thinking. You know, there's so many things to it. Ski industry is the same way. Highlight that. Um, there are those who have their shit together and those who don't. And um, those who rely on phrases like, if you have snow, it, you do well. If you don't, you don't. That's, that's a false premise, entirely false premise. Um, or if you spend a whole bunch of money on chairlifts, big metal, spending money on big metals, easy. The hard part is having it make sense from a finite capital outlay perspective. My answer to your question is the industry has shed the intensity of focus on real estate being such a key part of seeing to the PL or profitability. Thankfully, those who have figured that out didn't take long. There's a lot of roadkill on that one. Um, in the past 20 years and those who have stuck to the knitting are doing sharp things, good things, whether they be Wachusett's mountain, I think in Massachusetts, right? Yeah. All the way up to the big guys. There's some smart people that still have passion for the sport that are good business people running these mountains. Well, and well, so, well let's just look at the two major players. Sure, there are some, sure. even Snowbrains today is listing the largest ski areas that are not aligned. You have Whitewater, you have a few in Canada, but most of these companies are aligned with mm. one of the two major operations. Yeah. So uh, every year at this time of year, Vail announces its capital project. So at Vail Mountain, literally every lift is a high-speed lift other than a couple of beginner lifts. Yeah. Really, the infrastructure has improved. This year at Steamboat, amazing upgrades yeah. in infrastructure. So, what we know is the business model is to get the capital in the spring so you're not weather-reliant, mm -hmm. okay? We want people to buy the pass, which breaks even usually between five and six visits. Yep. You have that money, whether they go or not, you're at least set. Right. So, is that base of pass buyers, and of course, Epic two years ago actually lowered the price, Right. okay? Is there a ceiling on that? You know, if you want to talk surfing, you got to be near waves, right? okay? There's an inherently limited market. Yeah. And in addition with surfing, there's in the water on the beach, whereas a lot of these ski areas, you can actually entertain yourself if you never even go on the hill. And as a result of the high-speed lifts, almost nobody skis from bell to bell every day. <laughs> Very few. So, so, 
you have these resort areas. What is the ceiling? Knowing that we, I mean, it appears we can't build any more infrastructure in terms of new mountains. What, what's going to happen here? Yeah. Bob, I'm not trying to pivot or do the Sunday morning uh, meet the press politician pivot. I'm not. Um, I stepped off that business world, that world about five years ago. Um, I don't have a good contemporary answer for you, but let me, let me just, uh, as president Obama said, I loved his interstitials. Let me say this about that. In in this case, I would say, I completely understand the center point of your question and all the iterations. I get it. That could be said that that's one of the reasons I wanted to step off and I'd be a hypocrite to not point out my contradiction there the contradiction self-evident the very thing that i helped build is the very thing you're talking about right um but at the same time i realized it wasn't i had built a good career i had done well i was pleased and proud of some of the things i'd done look back and wish but this this case i was like okay i'm 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 not too sure i want to be a part of this particular circumstance going forward and that was great that was a personal, but the answer your question from a strategic perspective <laughs> is the uh, last time I'll use that reference. Um, is it the goal to set up a competitor for Vail? We felt was a good one. And the Ono Resorts by Altera Mountain Company, and then there's the Ono Resorts, and then there's affiliates, right. which are part of it. I think it's like 48 or something now, uh, something like that. But we built those with Mountain Collective Partners and more. Um, is extremely competitive. It's a competitive environment. And by the way, the research we did with McKinsey and others, we came out of the gates priced higher than the Epic Pass, very much on purpose, very much on purpose. And I'm thrilled to see the folks. You mean on purpose based on the numbers? Based on the numbers, based on the views. And, uh, you know, the fundamental premise is with Altera and the Icon, it was, I would think it remains, it's not a commodity product. We don't compete based on price. We compete based on price and many other things in some cases pre are precursors and other cases are epilogues to that whole discussion in the consumer's mind um it's, it's not complex but it's nuanced uh i could tell you this Cal- since we're here in california california is the battleground because you have in the market for the market high volume high visitation with squaw valley alpine meadows and mammoth and in the in the altera resorts they also have Vale resorts with north star heavenly um, and the like, but California was it. And it's also a market that travels to ski to Utah, to Wyoming, to Montana, Colorado, of course. So it was a big deal. And it was the battleground um, as part of the roll ups, the initial quantitative analytics we did on this um, stand up. The point being is, I don't know exactly where it goes. I do know this that skiing's become a little bit more affordable. And that's the good news. The other news is it's become more affordable. And that's brought a lot more people to the sport. And trying to find that equilibrium, that balance, I mean, it's it's with a great deal of pain and ah oh, type, kind of like, geez, seeing the lines on those high demand days, the compaction that we talk about, you know, two-hour lines at this resort and this resort, everybody gets them. And it doesn't matter how many gondolas, high-speed eights you put out of a base. When you have 12,000 people that want to go skiing in between 9 a.m. and 9.30 a.m., there's not a lift system on the planet that can move them out. Because Squaw, we had, even with the base-to-base, which is at 1,400 an hour, so 24th, there's, I think out-of-base lift capacity might be 6,000, something like that, skiers per hour. 
And then you put 9,000 people that want to get up, mostly on KT, understandably, because freaking Soul Center of Skiing Universe right there, incredible hill, um, can't be done. So that compaction issue has been augmented by passes. I don't know where it goes from here. I don't have a crystal ball on that, but I do understand that I, I can say the obvious, <laughs> restate, blinding flash the obvious, it's become more affordable. Good news. The other news is it's become more affordable and it's invited more people to the sport. I'm not trying to avoid your question. Man. No, no, I I'm think really you got not. it. But the reason we have to lay that groundwork is you are on the hard goods side of the yeah. equation now with peak skis. Yeah. So what do we know about the hard goods end? According to your uh, documentation, there's 900,000 pairs of skis sold in a year worldwide. Yeah. What do we know? The number has come down. So if we look historically, skis were not that well built. Yeah. Skis are much better built than they used to. I mean, if you were a regular skier, uh, you know, you would be, we're best friends with the warranty department. <laughs> and I can talk from experience. Whereas the skis, the skis would just fall apart, never mind uh, the resins, et cetera. Secondly, because of airline prices for baggage, there's a whole new paradigm which always existed. There was always a rental business. Then we went into the high-end rental business, and now there are plenty of people who travel without skis. There's a big issue of, well, how many skis can be sold in the market? And we look at these individual companies. K2 starts out as a private company in Vashon Island, Washington. The two Kirshen brothers owned it for a long time. Then it goes to a couple of owners and nobody wanted it. <laughs> okay. It was successful. We have Rosignol sold to Quicksilver, a disaster, repurchased by the original company. We have Solomon, been through a few changes, goes to Amir. We have a lot of companies that go out of business, Knaisel, et cetera. We could go on and on. Then we have... Uh, the Nordica Group, who builds a factory, everyone says this is the stupidest thing of all time, and now Blizzard is a dominant ski brand. Having said all of that, you were talking about the value of Squaw Valley, which is a large physical asset, there's not that many zeros, there's not that much money in the skiing. So if you go back decades, never mind open your own ski area, you'd open your own drugstore. That's all changed now. Okay, even medical groups, if you can mm -hmm. find a doctor, certainly in Los Angeles, there are doctors, not parts of group. They they don't take insurance. They might file. That's it. It's a very thin layer of the business. In addition, as I say, the skis last longer because of the quiver paradigm. Active skiers have more than one pair of skis. Yep. Okay. There may be a pair they don't use. We have the whole backcountry thing. In terms of powder skis, if you have a pair, 10 years is good enough, even if the technology changes a little bit. So why go into the physical goods business now? Uh, beyond a great question. But before I answer it, 
You went to Middlebury. Were you a ski racer or a free? I was. Uh, I know. Freestyle I was guy. on a ski team once. Let's be clear. I was never of that caliber in terms of racer. I was on the team once. I got hurt. Then after I went to Middlebury, I lived in Little Cottonwood Canyon. Mm. And at the time in the seventies, that was the epicenter of freestyle skiing. I did not know when I moved there, <laughs> but it was. I competed on the freestyle circuit. I wasn't. I mean, I skied. Scott Brooks makes all the best ski with these people every day. Yeah. Okay. But in terms of my results, not good. And then you realize, okay, you know, people don't understand at any elite level of physical competition in sports. There are psychological elements and experience. This guy, Scott Brooks, I would ski with him every day. He would be just as good, if not better in competition. The average person chokes. And an educated person would realize there's only a limited amount of money in this sport. Then a friend of ours, Dirk Douglas, got hurt on an inverted. They took the inverteds out of freestyle, and it crashed the business. Now, ultimately, moguls were in the Olympics in Renaissance, but that's a long answer to your brief question. Got it. But you know how to ski. Oh, believe me, I know how to ski. Zero doubt. Uh, based on that. I go deep on the freestyle community, not as a freestyle skier, but Park Smalley might have been. I used to ski. I skied with Park Smalley in Mammoth in 1975. He came out and stayed with us long before he was a coach. He's a very, very dear friend of mine from Steamboat, Colorado. Yeah, he's from Steamboat, yeah. And uh, yeah, we did a truckload of stuff. In fact, uh, hosted a bunch of freestyle World Cups. Uh, one of them, I named a whole freestyle complex after him, the Park Smalley yeah. Freestyle Complex. Um, surprised him. It was really cool that night. Uh, but go deep in that space. In fact, very dear friend, Johnny Mosley, uh, 98 gold, uh, and Travis Mayer and other steamboat kids mostly had go deep in that space, but have a lot of respect. The other thing, by the way, in terms of, I don't know what your injuries were, but in the seventies and the early eighties, nobody, you guys were doing some crazy stuff in the air and landing on hard pack. And now we put groups of choppers on the hill, uh, below the bumps, the airs on the bump courses, and certainly the aerials and stuff. You guys didn't have that. So. Well, you know, a vast improvement. I'm interrupting, but just to make this point in that uh, that the ski business was uh, driven by, in my air quotes, racing skis for right. decades. Then you had K2 that got out of the racing business. And certainly in America, racing skis don't mean that much. Ironically, skinny skis still are sold in Europe much more than in the United States. Yep. However, we've gotten to a point, and this is just my own personal beef, that once you start making the moguls, it's become so profound. It's not the same way, such that other than moguls, the best skiers, and you're working with Buddy, the best skiers are the racers. Just to go one step further, a friend of mine's an instructor in Aspen. And there was a video of someone analyzing the technique of Marcel Hersher, who was literally breaking every rule. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's different schools of thought. When I lived in Utah, the worst thing you could be, and you would laugh, you didn't want to be an instructor. We right. laughed at those right. people. By the same token, in most ski areas, the racers are off in their own hill their own paradigm no one even cares about those people then we had big mountain skiing you know we have the different element but the average person is skiing in bounds and an incredible percentage of people if it's a storm won't even go out right uh you know you were in little cottonwood you were probably on two of fours two of sevens two elevens probably race skis straight sticks Absolutely. and you were hammering down 
on some of the bigger bumps. Um, uh, totally pick up that scene. I was, well, we would laugh because people started to ski on 170s, Olin Mark IV. So you're in 170 right. and the bumps? Come on. Oh, yeah. Totally looked down on them appropriately. So, so Mary Jane uh, was the same way in Colorado in the mid 80s. It was like, you know, dude, you do not. In fact, I think they had signs up there that said anything less than a 204. Literally, you can't ski here. Right. Right. Um, get it. Uh, so that's really cool. You have that background, that heritage, and Park's great guy, great friend. Um, the answer to your question comes back to something I didn't answer. Uh, your first question was, how do I know Bodhi? But it relates to this. So when I retired, Bodhi and I, th- let me answer straight up. Um, it makes no sense to be in the hard good side of the business. Uh, when I came back from an entire, uh, Middle East, well, let me back up step. So I think I purchased probably 500 to a million pairs of skis in my career for different ski areas. And knowing a fair amount about the business models uh, would probably consistently think to myself, why would you ever want to be in that business? Because all the things you mentioned about ski resorts and the hard good side of the skier, skis is right. In fact, we looked at a book on K2 marker vocal, gosh, I think it was 16 or something like that, Rubbermaid and can't remember the different groups. But it'd be fair to say that uh, the ski resort side of business even if you have your somewhat of a clue, you're you're okay. Regardless of the market dynamics we've talked about, you're okay. You're probably doing 20, 25% EBITDA margin on bad years and 30, 35% EBITDA margin on decent years. And there are those who exceed that on an ongoing basis. And that's EBITDA, right? Uh, net operating cash, call it. It's not exactly that, but let's call it that for the time being. Hard good side of the business, different tale. Out of any 10 years of any ski company you mentioned, um, it's not even a capital intensive business either, but uh, because of the retail distribution model and more, uh, and it's largely driven by Europeans, say K2, and their intensity of focus on racing, be fair to say that any 10-year period, you can take a snapshot and say uh, two of those years, they might pull down 5 to 7% margin. Three or four of those 10 years, and I'm talking trailing 10 years of any 10 years, they're barely breaking even in those other two, three years remnant on this math is uh, they're getting crushed like a bug on a windshield. And knowing that, uh, why would you want to do that, right? Passion drives a lot of people. And in some cases, I compared some of the great folks I knew that used to run airlines, Delta, Continental, and the like. There's times where they would not be doing well. <laughs> I have friends that were going to buy an airline stock. You know, the history of airlines, right, and you never right. want to do that. And we could talk an awful lot about that. That's also how I cut my teeth in, in the business and ski was through all the analytics around the air program. Well, what people don't know is those are subsidized flights into ski areas. Yeah. So you guarantee a certain amount to the airline. And if you don't hit that, the ski area makes up the shortfall. Yeah, that's exactly right. Called minimum revenue guarantees. And right out of, in my internship, I was running models on that, which made no sense because I had no freaking earthly clue what I was doing, but I learned a lot in that process, um, on those revenue guarantees. So back to the point, uh, it's, it didn't make sense, but when, after I had retired, I got to know Bodie really well at this time, I was on the U S ski team board of directors and, um, we, I was living with my wife in San Juan Capistrano, California. And he was just up the road in Cota de Cota, Cota, Cota de Casa, Cota de Casa. 
the neighborhood down there in Orange County. I know County. it's down by Rancho San Bernardo. The, yeah. Bernardo I don't know. <laughs> Everything around here is a rancho or right, a vista. Right. Um, but we, we'd hang out. And at that time, most of it was, hey, how do we fix the U.S. ski team? We're having some challenges again and again and again. How do we stop this maddening cycle? Um, tragically in that we knew each other, we were friends. I had pulled, I'd been asked a long time ago, 14 or 13 to by governor Sandoval of Nevada and governor Brown at the time of California to help bring the Olympics back to Lake Tahoe from 1960. And I called him and, and pulled him into some of the initial discussions on that targeting 2022. So I knew him pretty well and I knew him as a friend. Um, and one of the other tales of Bodie that's, I think, worth telling is I was lining up to buy a whole bunch of skis for Squaw Valley Alpine Meadows. I don't know, like 10, 15,000, 20,000 pairs of skis restock. And head, he was on head at the time, but he was injured. And um, he just basically didn't have a right foot that he could have put any pressure on. If you remember that injury, I think it was 13, something like that. 14. Right. And um, so head, to try and influence me, says, hey, we're going to bring Bodie Miller and hang out with him. And I'm like, okay, cool. And uh, we ended up skiing for the day, just the two of us, him on one foot and me on both feet. I was able because of that to somewhat keep up with him, but we didn't talk about skis or skiing at all, all day long. Cause at that time he was going through a very public challenge with his daughter. And it was when, as you know, you have many very famous people on the show. When stuff like that happens, it ends up in freaking people magazine. And it's hard enough going through challenges with kids and a split family anyway for those who don't know he had a young daughter drown in a swimming pool accident. well i'm just about to get to that and in this case it's his older daughter at that time we all we did was talk about because i had three kids from a divorced family and how to put yourself in your own interests behind those of the interest of your kid all we talked about we skied and we were chairlifts and that's all we talked about we hardly and i was like this guy's he's nothing like the persona that many thought of, you know, showing up to start at Kitzbühel for the Hanukkah with a hangover or drunk or whatever. Um, this is a solid guy inside. I could see it. You ride chairlifts with people. You get to, you get to see that if you know how to pay attention. I did. I was impressed. Bookmark that. Then we, we're living near each other. We're hanging out. We're the Two guys that are retired that have too much time on their hands drifting a conversation at the coffee shop. Doing all, and, then, and then tragically, his daughter Emmy died. And I'd do anything to undo that. I would take five rounds. I would, I would do anything to undo the pain that that caused him and his wife, Morgan. Um, it's just fucking heartbreaking. And, and I was amazed at how solid he was through that circumstance. I gave him a couple, not gave him. I called him and said, I don't know. I don't have any words for you. I can't help you out. All I could do is be a wingman. And he called me two, three days later and uh, started up. Did you know that drowning is the number one cause of infant death? Bodie, I had no idea. That's how he led off. Hey, buddy, how you doing? Did you know that? Inf and, and I was. So from that point forward, um, uh, I can't remember how to, I don't even know how to describe that era, but we became better friends. Like I said, do anything to freaking undo that shitty way to become better friends. But um, then we ended up drifting back into conversation about you know, ski team, other business ventures and the like, um, and a lot of stuff in between there, here and there, but then on an entirely different realm of work, of line of work that I do, 
uh, I was over in the Middle East for about a year and change. Came back and I had, uh, by that time we were up in Montana. Just time out for one second. What were you doing in the Middle East? A couple of things. I was working for uh, uh, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. And I don't have anything at all good to say about that person. He is everything you read about except worse. Um, and so I was doing a couple of different things over there and uh, it probably not something I could talk about in great detail okay. on air, but um, it was an entirely different sector in space it had to do with entirely nothing to do with skiing at all. Um, what did it have to do with? Uh, 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 threat and risk assessment and mitigation, and in some cases training with uh, assets of our country that might be, uh, could be uh, special warfare operators working with their Ministry of Defense to help them improve their capabilities. How does one get that gig? It's a long story. Okay, then let's forget it. So yeah, you come please. back from the Middle East. I come back from the Middle East, and I have time on my hands. And at this point, Bodhi says, hey, want to help me out with this little project he's working on? And it was with a hard goods company. It was a ski company. And uh, he asked me to help do some work with this, try and fix it up, remedy some of the challenges they were having. And uh, at one point, I said, Bodhi, I, sure, I'll do anything for you. No problem at all. And it was fair to be fair to say that Warren Buffett couldn't, couldn't fix this deal up. But in the meantime, I had learned a lot. I learned a bit about manufacturing of skis, which I didn't know much. And I learned about some of the stuff that was in his mind that he never had a chance to put in place. Because, and that's actually part of the ethos of our company is this, is what we've done is, is take all the noise, all the egos, all the stuff, all the people in between his mind and the skis. And there's nothing in between that, right? What is in his mind is on the skis that you ski on. Hard stop. Um, but in that process learned and then, oh gosh, I don't know, six months into it, said, give me a second. And I crawled back into my rusty quantitative analytics mode cave and ran a whole bunch of analysis, whole bunch of research, you know, kind of going back to my old days and built some models and came out of that, um, said, here's the deal. Let's go do this, but we're going to have to change the model because neither of us want to be in the hard goods business because of what we described earlier, what you described earlier to be true is true. But the only means by which to make this work is with these three, four, five tenants. And the, we're the that classic business planning stage, stages of concept, proof of concept, develop business plan. We were in proof of concept, developing the business plan. And in this case, um, we need to go direct to consumer, have e-com only be our deal because the distribution system of ski shops and broker, the broker, broker groups, the buying groups were killing margin. And that's why you have that circumstance. Make a pair of skis for $200 a pair, right? Sell them for 800 whatever the MSRP is, or even the most available, or the most commonly available pricing. Um, but then you're selling them to those resellers. It's not somewhat self-evident, right? They're selling them for like $500. Yeah, yeah. But the manufacturing manufacturers are actually netting quite a bit less right well what i'm trying to say is the cost yeah. for 200 wholesale is four to five hundred the retailer may sell seven to eight so you can if they can sell them they're yeah. making as much as the uh manufacturer yeah. and if it's four to five hundred on wholesale that's a very good number suffice to say that we're not gonna be able to do that and now it's whatever it was 2021 or 22 think so in that zone and uh might be the last industry to to move into 
DTCE contract, consumer e-com. Um, other sell skis, smaller, great companies, Jay, Leventhal, and they're, they're great. And they've kind of had that model, but we're contemplating something a little bit bigger scale. And, uh, and so that was our, the business model, which sounds easier than it sounds easier to, it's easier to say it out loud than it is to actually put it in place. But because you have a tradition, you have a history in the ski business and we respect that. Um, there was more to it than that, but that was the key thing in terms of us saying, we're going to do this. We're going to have to go DTC Ecom. I called a buddy of mine who ran Canyon bikes, great bikes. He brought Canyon to the States in 2016 in an industry that's a strong analog because bikes, bike shops and the like, and, uh, but they had great success. And he was nice enough to open up his playbook and share with me what was basically three or four Harvard Business School case studies full of notes, notepads, um, and adopted a lot of policies, thinking, approach, the canyon. They fed straight into our business model. And when we uh, announced Peak Ski Company April 6th, I think it was, uh, last year. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Okay, quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. Obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform with one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com stereo right now. NetSuite.com stereo. NetSuite.com stereo. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget Beach Finder. Or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ibera Star Hotels and Resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. So Bodie, Bodie uh, retires 
And then, of course, he makes a deal with Bomber Skis, which yep. ultimately became an elite ski. He leaves Bomber, but elite in terms of price, small yeah. market ski. Yeah. Then he goes with a Pacific Northwest company, Crossland, and he really says he's invested in that company. Then he leaves that to go to peak. Now, for the, once again, every business is small at the top. However, skiing is a business that is relatively small compared to software, cars, whatever. Right. So within the business, one can argue quite strongly based on conversation that he hurt his image by jumping from company to company. Yeah. And therefore, to what degree is that a factor? It's almost like, well, now mm. I'm starting over, but it's like the third yeah. time. Yeah. Yeah. Your, your point's really well made, particularly in the consumer market view of things. It's very well made, particularly those who are aficionados in the sport and follow and track that. Um, that's not many, to be honest with you, but at the same time, your point's well made. In this case, he was kind of indifferent to it, and frankly, I was too. And we had the benefit of being, of, of being indifferent to that and saying, okay, got it. But I knew on the inside, he knew on the inside what had and had not happened at all ski companies, including those two that you mentioned. And that was fundamentally his ability to take what is, you, you have to understand, I know he's been on your, your show. Um, I equated him because I grew up in the Air Force to uh, the right stuff, uh, General Chuck Yeager. He would go to the Skunk Works is when that was first developed and hang out with the flight engineers all day long, months and months. And then he'd get a cup of coffee jump in a flight suit and go fly the damn thing, come back, feed input to the engineers saying at Mach point nine, and I know this because he was a friend of my father's. Um, he was an experimental pilot too at some point and uh, held General Yeager in great esteem. He was unlike anybody else because he could make how the X-1 happened. He didn't just fly the damn thing. He played a role in its development. I realized that Bodhi's like that. And I also really realized that his mind is very different than many think. He's got a creativity. It's, there's times I've, I've been on hundreds of hours of calls with him, Bob, with engineers, some of the best engineers that design skis. And it's, there's times I'll hang up and go, when did you get your master's in engineering from MIT? He's got this brilliant mind. Uh, what's that great movie with uh, Robin Williams about the guy running calculus? He's a janitor. He's doing calculus on the chalkboard in between, wiping floors. Um Oh, God, what was that movie? I can't remember the name of that one right now. It escapes me. But he's got this mental level brilliance, creative brilliance. Well, for those who follow, and as you say, it's a limited number, Bodie and Marcel Hersher were yep. known as the most in terms of tinkerers. Yep. Marcel Hersher was more focusing a lot of times on like what was the ramp angle and the grinding yeah. of his boots. Not that Bodie wasn't into that either. But just to stop with Marcel for sure. a minute. Marcel has his own company, Van Deer. Yep. Red Bull is a heavy component of that. Van Deer is also in racing, which you know is a crazy thing, but you can't make any money. Uh, they are coming. Gorsuch will be stocking their skis at a very high price point, right. 2000 What do you think of that? Legendary skier, Bodie and I, to a lesser extent that that, that, to the extent that that matters, have a great deal of respect for that gentleman and what they're taking on. And Red Bull, holy crap. I mean, Red Bull Media House and what they do, they hunt butterflies with howitzers, not shotguns. And they're forced to be contended. Uh, we specifically are choosing 
to your point, not to engage in the race community, to get deep into the World Cup level racing is a commitment that our that we chose to not take on as part of our business model. Um, it is a very European centric approach, and that's understandable. As you well know, alpine ski racing doesn't have nearly the traction in the U.S. that it does in Europe. We're just I'm going over to Solden here in three weeks. We're for gonna, the first World Cup race. Yeah, and we're going to launch Peak over the EU. And as part of the lead up to that, um, EU, UK, we call it. And uh, not we, but it's called. And in this case, everybody have interacted. Well, you guys know that Marcel is doing stuff, right? Yeah. And God bless him. Um, this comes back to your point earlier. You mentioned that there's about 900,000 to a million pairs of skis every year in the U.S. sold. In Europe, it's 2.2 million total available market, total accessible market. And uh, we're taking on very, very small components of that thoughtfully, we think, in terms of what we're trying to take on, what we're seeking to accomplish with our small but high-impact company, we think. And in this case, a lot of respect for Marcel. He's got great skis. The price point, the distribution system, the manner, uh, you know, the simple aspect is what's going to be your price point? You establish it. How's it going to appeal to what consumer? Price is as much a part of brand as anything, uh, both by repul- uh, pu- pushing people away from your product, but also in some cases attracting them, right? Folks want to have the most expensive ski with gold leaf on the top sheet and all that stuff. That's not my deal. It's not Bodie's deal. It's not what we're about. And so we have a different offering, a different value, and expressed in the quality of the skis and skiing experience. So we have a lot of respect for Marcel, what he's got going on. Gorsuch family, great operation we're we're direct to consumer e-com and there okay but let's go to the other side the reason i bring van deer is it's the only small company that seems to be playing on a relatively realistic competing with the other brands because in addition to that more than ever they're these boutique companies yeah the biggest the one with the best reputation is wagner out of telluride yep the reason I mention Wagner is if you buy a pair of Wagner skis, which are 100% custom, I mean, Gorsuch will sell you an off-the-rack Wagner, et cetera, but generally speaking, you call, you talk to them. However, they ask you for your boot sole length, right? and they mount the binding. There's this point of friction, okay? So you are selling a product that is direct to consumer, but inherently the person has to take it to retail to get the skis mounted. You sell bindings, whether they buy bindings there or whatever, when they get the ski, it is not skiable. Right. That is correct. Is there a question there? Yes. <laughs> so I know I know your question, Bob. I'm sorry. Okay. And also, you know, do you see yourself Okay, Wagner. Let me let me Lev- Okay, go. Let me address your point. I didn't mean to be cantankerous on that, but no you're problem. Get, get your, uh, the business model that I built uh, did not contemplate. Uh, I spent 30 years, uh, and I say this respectfully, of uh, everybody with a JD at some point in their academic career, um, working in a risk intense environment in different states, different countries, Colorado, Utah, California, British Columbia, and uh, the amount of time, effort, money we put into defense. Uh, against PI attorneys, they circle, they, they they have a role. I don't deny that. Also, some cases, uh, it, it'd be a long story, but a uh, fair amount of time, effort, money, 
gone into that. I built this business model in a fashion that did not contemplate taking on uh, that type of liability. And the only liability risk that is associated with our business in that in that case exists when we get into mounting bindings. And you know as well as I do, anybody who's a listener, ROLs, releases of liability only go so far. You can't disclaim gross negligence. And of course, PI attorneys feed off of that. And so we've chosen to not engage in mounting. So quite consciously, because of liability issues, you're not doing that. That is correct. We have built, just like Canyon did, many service-oriented workarounds for the customer. We consult with people one-on-one if they have interest. Um, you know, folks live in Chicago, Dallas, Fort Worth. They have ski shops. And what's become more common, even through backcountry.com, people buy skis without bindings. And they right. take those skis down to their ski shop in Dallas, and they pay the tech $75 to mount these Tyrolia bindings. I'm good to go. So, yeah, we consciously choose this path for those reasons and more. So, Bob, it's critical, and I can't tell you how sincere I am. Um, you come up with these phrases, maybe seen as cliches. Most of the time, we co-opt them. In this case, this is mine. I, for my life, my career, my experiences, I've never met a horse, a mountain, a dog, or a pair of skis I don't like. And that's more than just respect. I'm not Bodie Miller. I'm not you. I know how to ski, and I can ski kind of almost anywhere. Um, how well I do it is probably up for grabs. But I say that respectfully. I've been on the people that run these companies, the people that have built skis, love them all. They're my friends. They're Everything we're doing is respectful of what's taken in the past. But we have a different approach. We have a different take on things. Um, the why Bodie and Andy came out of retirement to do this is really predicated upon this other statement, this phrase of the least important thing about our company are the skis, but they're critical. A very purposeful, my trying to channel Yogi Berra, um, the skis are quite good, We're quite prideful in what we've developed. The business around it is, as I've mentioned, includes taking the noise and the people and the pride and the egos out of in between Brody's mind and the skis. But there's other things where we have going on with Peak Ski Company, including these strategic initiatives, technology integration. We announced Peak Locate. Okay, well, let's let's leave those We'll come back for to this. a second, but let's just talk about the ski. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. In a perfect world, yeah, something like Wagner, that's boutique. Mm -hmm. Jay skis. The guy started line. He's got a certain market, but he's within his own niche. Sure. Do you see Peak as a niche company, or do you want to have enough traction to compete against the traditional majors? We know for a fact that we have enough traction to compete against the majors now. At a much lower volume, and I'll put it in context. We'll we'll make sell probably nine thousand ninety five hundred pairs of skis this year. Um, that's very small compared to Fisher Solomon and the other big brands that you've mentioned. And keep in mind, we take on ten thousand pairs of skis. Say it was just the U.S. We're we're you now. It's not exactly trying to take on the taxi industry like Uber did, right? Um, you know, do quick math, and it's less than one percent of the total available market. So one could say, wow, setting the bar pretty low. And that'd be a fair statement. So we know we can compete. How fast we grow is going to be a very thoughtful, conscious effort guided by a whole bunch of research and response from the customer. Um, 
but it's unlikely that with wild success that we grow that number beyond 20,000 in three years. And that's because that's not our intent. Our intent really relates to the strategic initiatives. So we'll continue to develop and make very good skis. And we fold in some of the other elements of the strategic innovation that we're doing, including locating devices, including advanced materials development with thermoplastics and the like with a group out of Idaho. Um, and even the, re, the entirely re-engineering the manufacturing process of skis. I'm not trying to pivot out of your question, but the, the reason why the intent, Bodie and I came out of retirement to take this on, we've covered the direct-to-consumer model. We've covered the margin and we're not in, we're, we're conscious, we're aware, we're not Gordon Gecko, but at the same time, we did not enter into this business with um, nonprofit in mind. We have, we're profit-oriented um, and we're doing well. With that said, the primary motivation is to is a means to an end to fund and get these strategic initiatives going because that's where we get true motivation. That's where our passion lies. And the answer to your question is I'm, again, I'm trying to avoid it, but I guess we're niche. I I don't know. I don't. Well, to I, count. you know, historically the business was based on hot skis. You know, whether it's the 60s, the Rosignol Strato and the Dynamique VR17, whether in the 90s, uh, it was the Rossi 4S in the turn yep. of the century, it was the Solomon Extreme. Now, if you go on the hill today, unlike in the other days, you will never see one dominant brand. Right. Whereas it used to be a majority of people would have that particular thing. Right. But since it is a word of mouth business, Mm -hmm. And companies go hot and cold. Yep. If you got traction, one would think that you'd want to sell 70,000 pairs of skis. Sure. And that may take place. I think it's unlikely um, for a bunch of different reasons. And it's hard to summarize them in simple distilled down points. But that's not our goal. Maybe that takes place. Well, I mean, as a skier, okay, there's a point of pride in the equipment, like in any equipment-intensive business, auto racing, et cetera. Right. And there are the people who buy the Zai skis, buy the $4,000 skis, and they want to be the one person on the hill right. who has them. But a lot of skiers at the elite level, they want to be on what other people are on. Yeah. Okay? Agreed. So if they see one person out of 10 being on peak skis, they say that's a boutique skis. Sure. Like in Colorado, you'll see Wagner skis, which, yep. you know, on a regular basis. Great skis. But you know they're expensive. This is not a mainstream thing. Last year, you saw peak skis where I skied, not that many. But let me just shift gears here a little sure. bit. Okay. I skied on one brand of skis for the better part of 10 years. I got many peers of this brand. They used to, as you know, the cycles used to be briefer every three years, really change the skis other than the paint. Now, some people are going to four years, et cetera. But the last two iterations have been somewhat less satisfying. Yeah. So I decided to go to the shop, the elite shop, and say, you know, I'll ski everything you got. Okay. And uh, I ended up buying a brand that I hadn't brought for 50 years. Okay, Which because was? I bought the K2s. I haven't had a K2 awesome. for 50 years. Sweet. Okay, just to go very specifically, everybody's hot on the Storm Rider. Yep. Storm Rider is the very smooth ski. Yes, it is. But if you want to go in the bumps or whatever, you know, it's relatively stiff. It's not that quick. 
the uh, Bonafide used to be a complete truck, a joke in my book. It'll plow through anything. It's got no life. They made vast improvements. You could own that ski. I would have a hard time rationalizing that ski. I'm a person, you know, these characteristics have changed, but it used to be that the French ski was a very lively, fast-turning ski, whereas the Austrian and German skis were the opposite. There's been a trend towards the Austrian and German skis. I am more of a French ski person. I got a million pairs of Dina Stars, and I even skied the new Dina Stars before I bought them. They turn much better than the K2s, okay? Mm. However, they do not hold on the hard snow. Right. You know, and, and you know why, right? Well, they made them for a year without metal, which was a joke. Right. And now, if they have the exact opposite of K2, where they rocket frame, where they have less in the front. But I'm interested in your theory why they don't hold. Uh, torsional rigidity in the, in the waist. It's that simple. Um, most skis have the same trait or characteristic from tip to tail. And got to know that every there's in between 13 and 15 million skiers in the U.S., and none of them are the same, like any industry, like any product. And in this case, um, everybody has different expectations. You have a level of experience and knowledge that you can feel stuff in skis. Frankly, very few people can. You can feel it, and you can even articulate it, which is even fewer people. Uh, the uh, Enforcer series, great skis. Well, wait, wait, wait. You know, I'm, I'm on the opposite. That's, uh, that's a ski that I think people are buying on reputation. Right. If they ski it and they skied other things, I think a lot of people on enforcers would not buy that ski. And I, you know, respect your view. Uh, there's a lot of things we buy, whether it be phones, glasses, you know, that are based on what others are saying, of course. In this case, I've been on them, the Enforcer Unlimited. I love it. It's a nice, lightweight ski that's kind of does backcountry pretty well and Light, lightweight. Yeah, that, yes, I'm talking about the traditional 9400 with two layers of metal, exactly. etc. Um, by the way, remind me to talk about Tetanol, which I didn't learn about until a year and a half ago. There's a funny story on that. Um, so all of your points are well made. Everybody has different perspectives um, on this and their viewpoints of what they look in a ski. But back to the point of the, uh, the skis, um, the torsional rigidity is something you can find and get quickly. So you'll hear, oh, they're really great skis, but got to really stand on them. Right, you hear that constantly. I've heard that in thirty years, over thirty years. Or it's a really gumby, soft powder ski, right? Why? And so get that on hard pack. Good luck because it's a it's a noodle, right? Torsionally, not very rigid. Um, everybody has different purpose. You, you're uh, used to be a, an East Coast guy a long time ago, but now you're kind of a Sierra's guy, right? So you're probably on a wider underfoot ski. I got a lot of skis. I got my 72s, my 86, million in the 90s, got my 108s, got my 118s. Got to have the right tool for the right day. For many reasons, you're way more like um, I saw Ed, Ed Vetter and those guys over the weekend, and I just saw a guitarist. Used to be a little bit better than I am nowadays, but I guitar envy. I mean, I saw some Fender Strats being played. I'm like, I want that guitar, that guitar, that guitar. Uh, I'm a Les Paul guy. I'm a Gibson Les Paul custom guy. Just love that sound that came out of Dickie Betts when I was young. I was like, I want that sound. Then about a 63 Fender Bassman, I have to go with it. It's like three quarters of, or at least a quarter of the great songs have been written on the Fender. 1959 Gibson Les Paul custom plugged into a Fender right. uh, Bassman amp. I want that sound, right? This, maybe you 
or like that. Or I want that at a performance of a ski and still plenty of room for people who want to play strats or telecasters or Les Pauls or you name it. It's the way I see it and a bit of a reach on an analog, but I hope you appreciate the point, the effort there. Point being is back to the, the skis. Um, it's not magic, but the keyhole allows the best of both worlds. It's a little bit of a bipolar situation and you'll appreciate this is obviously a podcast so can visually but the front third of the ski from the tip to the unlike other skis they have the same trait or characteristic from tip to tail it's soft and forgiving on the front third and so turn initiation is shockingly there and easy and i remember the first time being on the prototypes december two two years ago and i noticed it i'm not as good a skier as you or Bodhi, but i can ski and holy crap I mean, it's the first time on these skis, the turn initiation, in this case, are 88s, so the first board's out. I couldn't believe it. It's like, this makes no sense. And I was waiting for it to be Gumby once I loaded it up, got into a turn. But because soft on the front, turn initiation, but then all of, and this is not by accident. This is stuff that does not happen by accident. Once you start loading up the ski, all of the weight, pressure, the physics pull, pull everything to the mid waist of the ski, and now it's torsionally rigid underfoot. And that's why. You have this, unlike other ski uh, designs, the turn initiations there, whether it be the 88s or the 110s, um, but then it stiffens up underfoot once you load it up, and it's torsionally rigid underfoot, and that's why it holds. Let me, let me There's more to it than that, but yeah. Let me just stop here on the point that I was making. So, in Vail, uh, my friend had a pair of the peaks. He thought that the guy who gave him to him was an investor lived in let's it, that's irrelevant sure but he said okay you know go out on him but i'm doing my own thing and then he said oh i passed him to somebody at beaver creek mm-hmm. so i didn't get on him yeah let's be point blank sure okay bring it in the ski industry the mm-hmm. people who are in the traditional retail mm-hmm. business they are down on peak for a number of reasons Bodie's jumping from company to company mm-hmm. uh and two they don't sell them mm-hmm. and they want to do retail then there are some elite places they want to sell things that are not footballed but let's not get into that sure. okay yeah so the reason i brought up the demo of the skis i could have gotten anything right at below wholesale mm-hmm. and i said okay i'm skiing so much let me go demo and whatever and i ended up buying what i never would have bought okay which was were those k2s okay oh, i bought yeah. a couple of pairs the, the 99 the 108 is an unbelievable ski that's better than the 99 but whatever my point being this is a business of people who are buying traditional top of the line skis i'm not talking about custom skis i'm not talking about two thousand dollar skis mm-hmm. skis that usually msrp is like 799 mm-hmm an incredible percentage of those people want to ski on that ski mm-hmm. before they buy it. Sure. Now more than ever. But I can't ski on the peak. Mm-hmm. So what do you have to say that as peak? I mean, I basically have to blindly buy it. Mm-hmm. Blindly. And then if you don't like them after 30 days, turn them and no questions asked. Now, here's the point. Your point's well made. The key is traditional in ski industry. We are not traditional and we're really in the industry by default, but we just don't see it that way. Um, in this case, Canyon, 
bikes had the same exact okay, okay i know canyon bikes but if i were to buy a canyon bike i don't know yeah when it comes to my door mm-hmm. does it have to be assembled yeah and who assembles it you can if you don't know how to gear it and wrench it you have they have a company that comes helps you put it together but it's pretty pretty good but l- allow me to but let me just so i know because i'm interested yeah. yeah so someone comes to your door like wilson speakers and you pay them a hundred dollars and they you're not bringing it to a retail shop right okay that is correct but the point being is go to a ski shop go to a bike shop that's the analog what do people do at the bike shop they get on that bike and they ride around the parking lot return it and say i'll buy it or not but up until that point it's been shaped and formed by what the tour de france guys are on what everybody else is saying they're local bike club guys you name street all that kind of stuff um much the same as if you were to demo a pair of peaks you would trade your driver's license at a 10 by 10 tent and get 90 minutes on that ski now a guy like you could probably probably have a good chance of no matter what the conditions are in that 90 minutes figure out that ski pretty quickly you can i think one or two runs i found is usually enough yeah i'm going to point out that you are atypical I'm not no, kidding. believe me, I know. Most people, this has been a joke for 60 years. They paid them, they love them. You, yeah. ride, the, you ride the hill, what, how do you like those skis? You never get someone who says, eh, they're not that good. Exactly. Um, the ability to demo skis, we bludgeon that barrier by saying, no questions asked. 30 days, give us your money, send them back, no questions asked, we'll pay for the shipping back. All learned by from Canyon, in this case, ski them 30 days. You can put 16 different pair of bindings on them. You can ski them every minute of every day for those 30 in all kinds of conditions. You choose where and how and when you ski those, send them back to us. Done deal. So what percentage of people send them back? Uh, 2.8%. You want to know why? Okay, why? (laughs) Mostly because they think they wanted a wider underfoot or narrower underfoot model. Very, I think, maybe a, a, granted, we're small, right? But maybe... Four, 30 40 pair of skis came back because they just didn't like them and oh. that's cool and we learned from those folks okay but let's say i was one of those people i returned the skis yeah you're gonna say absolutely give me the money back but why what am i gonna find out if i turn you am i gonna get any reluctance you're gonna give me credit on my credit card immediately yes credit the latter of those two credit card credit and what did you learn from the people who didn't want them at all um they didn't like how they turned many of them were very very high performance skiers former ski racers, many, I couldn't tell you empirically, but the vast majority were uh, high-end skiers, racers, really wanting something more with a consistent trait of tip to tail. They wanted torsional rigidity all the way through or something else. But um, in some cases, they weren't too sure how to articulate it. Interestingly, I found that folks can know they like or don't like a ski, but it's also tough for them to articulate why. So uh, that bike shop thing, but right around the parking lot, right. going to a bike, into a store um what's the first thing that happens you go to a a ski shop talk to a guy you have some perspective shaped by the outside magazine gear guy that just came out and what they do they grab a pair of skis and they bend them right guy like you knows how what he's feeling guy like Bodie knows of the 15 million skiers in this country about 14.9 million have no idea what they're feeling when they bend those skis i would say you're right get my higher so um respectfully of all the great ski shops and the ski technicians and the people that sell skis um how much value they add in that transaction is varying in our case we have a straight up direct line of communication with the customer prospects as well as customers and 
you know, we contend that riding a bike around a parking lot like Canyon, not doing it. Getting on the skis for 30 days, bang them, test them, drive them, send them back to them if you don't like us. It's that simple. It's a pretty, it's kind of Nordstrom's has that, that deal from back in the 90s. Remember when Nordstrom's had that right. classic service story of guy comes back with four pairs of tires or four sets of four tires and says, I want to return them. Nordstrom person said, sure. Well, and of course, the services story is that they don't sell tires. In this case, we're in that same mode because why? Because in this case, it's a mitigant against the business planning process. You can call it B-school type of stuff. It's a mitigant against the resistance, the consumer resistance, because there's a history of people buying skis a certain way and doing them, sort of, including demo tents at ski areas. Say, so we get that. We're, we're acknowledging the past. But at the same time, we have some mitigants to help people get to and through that. And thankfully, um, that's going, it's going pretty well. Okay. If you go on your websites, you were selling one brand of binding look mm. at the conventional price you can get them from anywhere. Yeah. Why look, why sell bindings at all? Yeah. We are agnostic to bindings. People have, uh, and maybe I'm applying bindings to religion. Maybe I shouldn't do that, but um, there are people that are tied to a certain style or type of binding, right? And there's the whole thing of fundamentally folks that are skiers see bindings as either retention devices or release devices, right? A guy like you, maybe it's more retention. Oh, believe me. I've only been hurt when the bindings have released. Exactly. And I learned that when I was skiing over in Japan with a guy who was a really good skier. And uh, he used to take those old look bindings and take the coil out, take a section of ski pole, yeah. put it in there and says, I just want the ski to stay on my feet, right? Not that many people think that way, right? Back to bindings. In this case, in the absence of a preference, We'll, we sell, look, we'll, we'll also be selling ATK bindings here shortly and other bindings. So first year out of the gates, yeah, we would look in the absence of a Well, preference. you know, I'm a look guy. Oh, you are? Okay. okay so binding. I have to ask why look? Simply put, they're how they're made. They're very durable. Number two, the look pivot binding in particular has a small base plate on the toe, small base plate on the heel on a relative basis. And because of that, it... Uh, it, it doesn't impinge the flex of the ski as much is our two basic answers. Um, it just depends on what folks like. Yeah, you know, I buy all those things. I, I'm a look guy. And the funny thing, just to go back, I had a switch from look in the 70s because they didn't have uh, shock absorption forward and backward, which, of course, they have now. Now right. it's the freestyle dining. Of course, it used to be the Solomon. Okay. So let's get into the skis. Yeah. You sell an 88, you sell a 98, you sell a 104, you sell a 110. Someone comes in also, although you saw a 178, you have a sell a 168 instead of a 170, and you go up to 190, which a lot of people don't. Can someone call and say, hey, give me advice which one to buy? Yes. And what are you going to say relative to those skis? First thing we do is go through the good old questions of where do you ski? What are the primary conditions? Give us a mountain. Where do you like to ski most of the time? What are the conditions you abhor and avoid? What are the conditions you thrive in? What are the conditions you find yourself in in between? Background, history, frequency, all those kind of things. And uh, what are the skis you're on? First thing, I do this all the time. We're a small company with 21 people up there in Bozeman, Montana, where we're headquartered. And I end up on conversations all the time, which I love with our prospective customers. And a lot of business, what are you skiing on right now? What ski do you dig on? What are the skis do you not like? And uh, that by the time we get through those questions in conversation, it's not like we're telephone, what do they call them, TSRs from the 90s? Uh, you know, we're after the scripted 
kind of flow chart of stuff. It's more just conversation with the folks. Um, and we can help figure out pretty quickly what they're looking for in terms of width underfoot and then length. One thing about the peak skis is they just, they tend to, it's not just the keyhole, but because the other elements of the, the geometry, absence, relative absence of side cut comparatively for the kind of turns that you can pull off in these deals on these skis, but also the rise on the front. It's not a full rocker, but it's a rise. Um, they tend to ski about four to five centimeters shorter than most conventional skis. I think it's fair to say these are not conventional skis because of the keyhole and more. Um, so we take that into account, but uh, we will get into conversation with folks because we know our skis and we like to know more about what they're looking for. And then we match them and we do it with human beings, not with AI, not with bots. Okay, let's go to the strategic initiatives. One is the uh, homing device, the location device. Tell sure. us about that. So we had, uh, gosh, when I got back, was it before Saudi Arabia? I think it was. I was training for Denali and I had gotten up. This is back when I was talking to Bodhi, doing a whole bunch of different stuff. And I had, uh, this has shocked some of my good friends from the business and you, maybe I'd skied 50, 60 days, but had not ridden a chairlift once because I was training for Denali. I'd pack on my back, sled on my back, and it's been a lot of backcountry work, loved it. I had a wild hair one day and strapped, literally duct taped some Apple Air tags onto my skis. I just wanted to see what would happen. Um, quickly found out the dark sides, the blind spots of the Apple Air tag form factor, limitations, battery life, and all that kind of stuff. But then bookmarked that and said, still, there's something here, right, in terms of being able to find your skis. Um, come fast forward. So one of the three strategic initiatives prior to our announcement of Peak Locate was technology integration. We think there's a better way to integrate technology in a real way, not just in a whiz-bang, zippity-doo-dah, LED light crap way, right? True innovation that does stuff. Um, we found a development partner uh, called Pebblebee, and they have a unique position uh, in that they have a locating tracking capability that works with both Apple iOS as well as Android platforms, Google Android platforms. Unique. Nobody else can do that. Um, it's also a device that's externally externally rechargeable. Um, with it uh, in the Apple world, it's the Apple it MagSafe technology. It's called technically a G charger, um, and the battery life is three months right out of the gates. There's more to it, but then they were able to work with us and customize the form factor and make it very small, very thin. It's uh, roughly, gosh, I think it's a neighborhood of eight millimeters by uh, 11 millimeters and about thickness of a credit card. And last three months worked with both platforms um, and so, and externally rechargeable. So we announced this in March of this last year no, this year, excuse me, and uh, and we're working on integrating into all, all of our skis for 24-25. And it's basically a tracking, locating device in simplicity. It does simple stuff really well. And I would argue the following. I learned from the ski resort side of things, the spectrum of people that are skiers in the U.S. I'm going to pick on the U.S. You have, and uh, Epic is a good example, Epic Mix. Remember when sure. Bale came out sure. with Epic Mix? A lot of folks still use that, but there's initial adopters that were kind of very technically tech-oriented. They have used it, continue to use it right out of the gates. But those people don't know. These track your vertical, your runs, yeah. et cetera. Very technology-oriented, um, to say the least. And then the other end of the spectrum is leave my ski experience alone. I don't want any technology. I just want to freaking ski, right? 
Um, and then the vast majority of American skiers are in between. And I equate it to four-wheel drive. I live in the mountains and I use my four-wheel drive on my, when I have to, maybe 15 to 20% of every day of the year. But when I need it, I really need it, right? This device is really simple. It's elegant. If you're, you don't want technology invading your ski experience, great. Don't use it. If, you, if you're a techie guy, you want to know it, here you can light it up all day long. But it goes, it's a device that goes underneath the top sheet so you can't see it. And for the vast majority of people that want to locate their skis in deep snow, um, they're at Vail and there's 3,000 pairs of skis outside the lodge and they can't remember where they put them. Um, it is a device that is a theft deterrent, right? Because hard to defeat it without ruining the ski. Um, it's also a tracking locating device for when you're traveling. So it's a simple, straightforward ability uh, deal that works with Apple Find My as well as Androids. Okay, just deal. a little bit slower. Sorry. Find My works on Wi-Fi and then every other phone in the area. Yeah, it doesn't work with Wi-Fi, but yeah. Okay. If I'm in deep powder and I lose my ski, there might not be any other phones there. How's it going to find my ski? With uh, We have combination Bluetooth and NFC near field. And what's the range of that? Uh, we've tested it at 40 meters. We put a ski. 40 meters? Yeah. We put a ski, it was in January, 40 meters away and one meter deep snow. So call it three feet deep in snow, 40 meters away, so a little bit you know call it you know 40 yards away 120 feet found it with found the ski within about 38 seconds okay two questions one a the tracking device is not in this year's skis correct is this a business is this something you're going to license to other companies yes what are the uh barriers to entry for competitors um on the pure technology side yeah. Competitors have a very, very difficult time finding somebody who can develop this technology that works with both Apple and Android. The relevance of that is in the U.S., 64% of Americans use Apple iOS. Largely, the balance use Google Android. Those metrics almost perfectly invert for Europe. Where Google Android is the dominant platform, I think it's at 62% last year, and the balance are Apple iOS. So they get a very difficult time finding somebody who can make this kind of technology work with both platforms and have a device that is externally rechargeable. So those are the primary technology barriers to entry. And that's, you know, we have some exceptional IP attorneys. One guy, our primary IP attorney, worked with a little technology company in uh, Cupertino called Apple for 16 years. He knows his stuff. And so we have, a, we have exclusivity in this sector globally for this device that does all, everything I just mentioned. Okay, let's switch to materials. Yeah. Uh, I've lived long enough to know, to go when they took the metal out of the skis, then they went to foam cores, then they put the metal back in. Dina Star's now putting a foam stringer for in their skis. Yeah. And you talk about something that's a new material. You were talking about tetanol earlier. Tell me about this new material. Sure. Tetanol, I made reference to it twice so far, but tetanol, I had... Personally, and ski resorts bought skis since 1992 that had the name of the ski in TI or titanium in it. I didn't find out till about two years ago that tetanol is less than 1.2% titanium in it. Right. I think that's, I think that's deceptive. Oh, it's very deceptive. <laughs> and I'm like, uh, so, hey, look, we're guys, carbon fiber and titanium, it must be good, right? That's bullshit. 
I mean, let's just call it like it is. That's bullshit. I mean, call it well, Especially now that Apple's selling a phone with titanium uh, exterior, it implies that these skis have titanium, which right. they don't. They don't. It's an aluminum alloy made by a group in Austria, MAG, locked it down in 92. And since 92, we've been seeing that, right? Right. Um, I didn't know that till a year and a half ago. Well, I'm going to say it was a sucker, but it was like, I kind of believed it when I saw TI and titanium. I was like, that's not true. Um, that's really not true. And so relative to the materials, switching gears, I also came to find out and understand that carbon fiber has been used in many skis and is a less than desirable material. Now, I did know that, but I didn't know it the way I do by way of Bodhi. And that is because fundamentally, without getting too deep into my modest level of engineering and physics understanding, is uh, how it receives energy and returns energy is very spiky. So if you've been on skis that have a substantial amount of carbon fiber somehow in this construction, they receive energy and returns energy in a way that for a skier like you would be probably not very desirable. Chattery, you can got lots of different descriptions, but it doesn't work well. But it achieves the outcome desired from the people making the ski light and stiff but doesn't theoretically perform. they charge more for a carbon fiber ski is carbon more expensive no it depends on the braiding it depends on you know all kinds of stuff but i'm not saying it's bad because in some skis you're getting what you want which is light stiff and you're not necessarily looking for performance on a turn right um backcountry touring all kinds of side country stuff. You want skis that are primarily lightweight, right? And stiff-ish. But this trait and characteristic of carbon fiber and how it receives returns energy is that absolute core, pardon the pun, of, of what we're talking about. So in describing this to this group we're working with, and uh, they, their clients include the Department of Defense, NASA, Boeing. Um, they're working with Amazon on the, uh, the Blue Origin Space Shuttle. They, uh, we're small. Ski industry is really small compared to what they're taking on, but we've been able to work our way in and we're working with this group um, at, at the molecular level to develop as the, the MAG group did in Austria, develop Titanol. Um, we're working at the molecular, molecular level, developing our own thermoplastic that has the tracing characteristics that we desire, which is to receive and return energy in a fashion more similar to what we know to be wood, right? A more smooth distribution curve of energy return. But we still want to get the lightness and stiffness out of the material so we're at the early stages incipient stages of that work and uh very encouraging what we're doing right now but i'd emphasize we're not looking at a different type of braiding of carbon fiber we're literally starting at the molecular level and developing our own thermal okay so this is also something that you as you referenced tetan on the uh the group overseas that you would like to see this as a standard throughout the industry and therefore its profit potential yeah so much the same, you asked the question straight up with Peak Locate. Um, we're going to, we've already, we're already waist deep in discussion of use of licensing Peak Locate to other manufacturers, many of whom you've already mentioned on your show or on this podcast. Um, with, we're not nearly as far down the path with the materials we're developing, the thermoplastics, but uh, be fair to say that we anticipate developing this material and being in probably a similar situation as MAG has been to Tetanol and licensing it to other manufacturers. 
okay, the third component of your strategic initiative is the actual manufacturing process. Presently, skis are uh, pressed. If anyone has seen the video, and it's funny because they have a how you make this uh, video, these are essentially made by hand to this day. And yep. it's the quality control is light years better than it used to be. But anybody who's really into knows that every pair of skis is going to ski a little bit differently. So yep. tell us about your manufacturing initiative. Again, stuff I didn't know until two years ago. Um, ski presses are basically a panini maker, right? You have a form, you have a mold, layers that have been specified, designed, all that kind of stuff. Go into this large machine. We have one of them in Montana, uh, Langsdowner's ski press the best one on the planet and uh, basically a bit of pressure or uh, a bit of heat not a ton but pressure in a very specifically oriented way takes a sandwich construction which involves epoxies glues resins some heat and this impresses it pull them out it's your points well made every pair of skis is handmade they just are made two through i mean literally the person they got they lay the fiber class yeah. it's incredible it's the it's it's actually the equivalent um you know what a mimeograph machine is, but it would be as if the laser printer had yet to be made and we were still using mimeograph machines. That is what a ski press is. Worse. And, but if you attach a computer to the mimeograph machine, it's still a mimeograph machine, right? Get right. my point? So Bodhi has some contacts um, in Hoblick, Germany, a group called Beeler, B-I-H-L-E-R, and they have nothing to do with the ski business. And their clients include Mercedes-Benz, Bosch, and others. They are exceptionally good at fully automated, high-precision, multi-material elements coming into uh, a machinery process to automate skis in manufacturing, basically take us out of the mimeograph era and do what maybe the Hewlett-Packard group did and develop laser printer. We're, we've, we're well down the path on that, working with this group. And uh, be fair to, we call it Project Treadstone because <laughs> uh, we thought that was kind of a funny reference. Obviously, with the absence of your smiling, it wasn't funny enough. Maybe you can help me out with a new name. But we're uh, get, getting pretty far down the path to basically re-engineer the entire process by which skis are made. And it has to do with materials coming in, the components, how they come together and come out. The other elements are um, probably not, it's not going to look much in a year to Maybe nine months to 12 months from now, we'll have a prototype over in Germany. It'd be fair to say that it, it won't look anything like how skis are made today. Uh, and that would also theoretically be a business. You would sell that to other manufacturers. Yeah, we would We would see ourselves. Okay, and now these three strategic uh, initiatives, were they there at the advent where you started to make skis and you came up with this other stuff? They were, but today we have a much clearer line of sight than we did a year and a half ago on all three of them because we've advanced on the same time we were standing up the business in a very fast moving basis launching it going meaning peak skis um and getting in the marketplace but then we really started going pedal down on these with this great team member we have a guy named darren haugen who's our chief product officer an engineer brilliant guy worked boeing for a little bit masters in engineering worked with k2 for quite a while he knows skiing he's a passionate skier mountain guy used to be a ski patroller but big sky um, he gets it. And putting Bodhi together with Darren, it's great. It's fantastic. Um, I'll drop something on on you here in a second. Uh, new ski. It'll be a scoop, if you will. Um, we're probably going to launch in late October a 78 underfoot um, for the European market and also the uh, U.S. skier, primarily uh, East Coast skier that wants narrower underfoot ski. Um, but 
Darren's been really critical on advancing these initiatives, including the work with Beeler and this engineering process. I have to make mention that the reliance on glues, resins, and epoxies on this current process, um, skis, when they get retired, where do they go, right? And they're not as bad as lithium-ion batteries, but if they don't become Adirondack chairs or fences around some people's backyards, uh, they end up in a dump. And those glues, resins, and epoxies are not good for the environment. In our case, one of the five primary development criteria include the same process by which we make the skis, the same materials or processes by we're able to deconstruct those exact skis after they're retired and retask those materials. What do you think of the Rossi uh, recyclable ski? Good stuff. More the better. Okay. Great. Great stuff. The brilliant minds. Good stuff. This okay. Is, this is different. Who actually makes peak skis? Right now it's Ilan outside of Ljubljana in Slovenia. Um, uh, we might be diversifying our manufacturing sources going forward. Diversifying meaning multiple manufacturers? Yes. What would be the reason to do that? De-risk. Any business, when you have a single source supplier or a single point of failure, um, you know, Fisher had a factory burn down, was it right. two and a half, three years ago? Um, we don't have a single point of failure if for some reason something were to happen in Ljubljana, Elon. We have a single point of existence right now until we get Treadstone built. Um, I want to come back to Treadstone in a second, but um, yeah, right now it's a guy's in Slovenia. Okay. They're making the skis, but they're also in the business themselves. Yeah. What is their incentive to do as well for you? And you actually have someone on site when the skis are made. So they have these huge factories. Their incentive is basically they have production capability. Um, I, I can't speak on their behalf, but if I'm the CEO of Elon and other companies that do this, including Fisher and Kessley and others, many do it, OEM, white label, whatever you want to call it. Um, they have capacity in their production facilities and they feasibly or theoretically hit their head on the ceiling of demand for their brand and their product. So they use capacity and we buy skis from them. Very common. Uh, Black Crows make their skis at Elon. There's in fact to do these factory tours uh, with all the manufacturers. I'm just amazed at how many skis I thought, wow, I never even thought about who makes their skis, but they're made here. So it's the vast majority of skis that you know of are made by these big factories. Okay, so last year in the middle of the season, there were incentives early, like you buy the skis, you get a pair of bindings, something like that. But you got to the point where you got two pairs of skis for price of one. Yep. However one words that, it appears to be a sale. And it makes it, many people might say, well, why should I pay full price now? Mm -hmm. Because... I'll wait for them to go on discount. Now, there are certainly companies, Rolex, a lot of, a lot of if they have excess inventory, they bring it back. They destroy it yeah. because they don't want to lower the value. What was the thinking and why should I trust the price going forward? Straight up. Um, under, under, I'll come finish with the consumer view. Uh, get that. Um, in times 10. The simple nature of things, we launched the company in April. First batch of skis come in and they come in in different tranches throughout the fall. And some of those tranches, some of the batches of skis were pretty late. So we were not, we weren't fully, I would say, inventoried until mid to late November, early December, number one. Number two, um, we're brand new. And as much 
credibility and impact as Bodie Miller's name has, it's a brand new ski in a market full of traditionalists, skeptics, understandably skeptics. Um, and so, yeah, we did not have as much pickup and traction and demand as we thought we would in the September through November, December timeframe. We turned the corner on New Year's and uh, so p- set that aside. We're also a direct to consumer e-com company. We have some excellent strategists and tact. I have this chief marketing officer. I call her our digital marketing assassin. So we do a lot of testing and our industry is small enough. It's not like Anheuser or a, a cola companies or beer companies have big enough market to go test demand at price points and those kind of things. We don't have that luxury. So in this case, we're doing recon as much as anything. See what bundles, what offers move, right? Um, we've done a lot of that. Binding ski bundles, multiple bundles. A lot of it's testing and yeah, a lot of it's to sell. In this case, the two for one, we ran for 10 days, I think it was in January. And unlikely we will go back to that, but we learned a lot through that process. What'd you learn? Uh, number one, <laughs> I was called by a couple of friends saying, whoa, you guys desperate? You're in a tough spot? And I said, no, we're testing and we're moving out product. It's year one, doing okay. And oh, by the way, our retention on revenue per ski is still higher than yours. Think about that. We're selling skis at 890. Cut that in half. That's our take per ski on a two for one. We're still retaining more revenue per ski. Um, it, it was off model, off our pro forma modeling, but at the same time, um, it was in and out and not a consistent, and it achieved a great deal of success in moving inventory, but more importantly, we had to get our skis under people's feet on the mountain, and we wanted to do that quickly. We know the demand curve in the traditional sense of hard goods in the ski business Labor Day through mid-January, but running ski resorts, I know that the 42% of most revenue is made in between presidents in late March. There's a lot more demand out there, just the traditional distribution system in the ski business doesn't know how to deal with that because they've already pushed all their product to through the retailers and they're barely able to know who's buying what, let alone, uh, and, and I mean that from a consumer perspective, not volume, but um, there's a lot not known. In our case, we learned a truckload through that sale and other bundles and other packages we put out there and yeah, it went well. Okay. Many ski manufacturers don't change the construction, but paint the job every year, mm-hmm. and the skis are discounted at some point during the season. Right. Also, there are model cycles. Mm-hmm. Will you follow the same situation where you will change the paint job discount, and when will we see, other than the tracking device, when will we see updates in these models? Three questions. No, no, and twenty four, twenty five. <laughs> okay 24 25 what is going to be different about the skis other than the tracking device? well let me i don't need to be too truncated there on the answers um we don't just change the paint job we're extremely forthright very very honest glaringly honest with what has and hasn't changed for 23 24 we have increased number of lengths and models the skis are largely unchanged in some ways a couple of refinements here and there most folks would not at all categorize as overhauls, but we nor have we represented to anybody that we've overhauled the skis or it's a whole new model. 2425, there will, there will be a, a host of changes for the design of the skis. Um, some of them substantial, some of them not. One of them will be the high, high likelihood of integration of peak locate into every pair of skis. 
Okay, I think we've covered. Is there anything you need to say about this that we haven't spoken about? Holy crap. No. I mean, geez, line of questions, man. I feel like I'm in a deposition. Well, now. you know, as this I say, great. Believe me, I have more, but I won't ask them because as you get in, I mean, listen, there's so, you know, some of this shit is marketing. If you look at Blizzard, and I'm not a fan of their skis. First, they talked about Flipcore. Then they changed their core again in terms of now they're talking about, and they're not the only company. Well, everybody else just makes the same ski in different lengths. We make it just for these lengths. Uh, and then other people, there are certain skis, identical, but everyone knows, no, you got to buy it in this length, not that length. So there's a lot of variables. And right. as you say, uh Okay, Amazon. I'm a big Amazon fan. Customer service is amazing, mm -hmm. as long as you don't abuse it. Yeah. If you send back four 55-inch TVs, they will say, we're not going to sell anything anywhere. Yeah. Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> right? Right. But shy of that, they'll work with you. You never get, whereas I've had to, you buy something on eBay because it's unavailable, it's out of production. A lot of those people, they don't want to take, well, you're sure, blah, 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 blah. So... You know, I me, think just getting people over the hurdle, knowing that, hey, you'll take them back is important. In two seconds, without any questions, I think there's a couple things I'd throw in that you hit on in those comments. And that is, number one, um, we have this internal deal. We're not here to do what's been done before. Um, and that's not disrespectful of the past. It is, in fact, respectful of the past. There's just not much about our company, the team, what we do that has any trait or characteristic that has a tracer bullet going back to the traditional ski industry in any way shape or form and it, it's just not necessarily anything other than our chosen path that said we have this patentable patentable uh cutout that we call the keel i was dragged kicking and screaming into naming it i didn't want to and the main reason being upon tetanol and other things the industry has been void of real, true, hardcore innovation. It's been a whole bunch of really nifty, tricky names. Flipping this and that core, this, you know, titanium, all that stuff. And I wouldn't say feel like a sucker, but we came into this, Bob, as contrarians, skeptics. That has fed our development of our business model. And that includes, I don't want to name it because it sounded like yet another iteration of nifty, sizzly crap that doesn't necessarily... But we had to name it. So like, okay, we'll call it Keel because we have to. We have to name it something. And um, it makes a difference. And now we have a patent in place and we're in a good spot. But everything about our company is straight up. We don't speak in hipsters talk. In fact, inside our company, there's a $10 fine. Anytime you use the words like um, disruptor or that kind of hipster talk that um, these are words that used to mean something as a Middlebury graduate I would be shocked if you don't have an appreciation for how the English language has been diluted in this case these are words that used to mean something now they've been so abused by many in the industry including advertising folks that um, they don't have any value and in our case we just say, say things extremely straight up fashion blunt force trauma like you said about 10 minutes ago point blank everything about our company is straight up how we communicate the customers the truth matters we're not like we're not going to be pulling out stuff that is sizzly marketing bs and trying to convince people to buy our skis based on that it's, it's a different deal we just 
hey, look, man, Bodhi and I are retired guys. We have a lot of time on our hands. We have some experience and we think we can do this pretty well, including the strategic initiatives. But that's just a no bullshit approach to how we come into this world of making skis and selling skis. And good news is we've done well in some of the ski ratings and write-ups and we're prideful in that. But there's we're just getting started. Bodhi's got a notebook full of ideas. And there's more to come on the skis themselves as well as these other initiatives. Well, I'm kind of speechless because this is my passion. But in any event, Andy, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and my audience. Oh, yeah. This is great. I mean, I love the history. I got to say that I'm intensely honored, particularly honored to be here because you have had folks like Liwicky, Bonnie Raitt, one of my guitar heroes um, on the show. And I'm just a I'm just a retired guy in Montana that rides horses a lot. And um, to, to be on the show and have questions, your passion is welcomed. And I really appreciate the chance. Okay, till next time, this is Bob Lefset. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, hey, it's Malcolm Gladwell, host of Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Your elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive entirely its own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to reu hotels and resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com.